welcome back we are on episode two of the pink smoke podcast favorite horror films of the decade hopefully you're joining us right from the previous episode which is part one uh but if not just to reach, straight uh, in we, back to back what we're doing is uh we are talking about our five personal favorite horror films of the last decade myself john Kriz, with chris funderberg and our guest mr s.a bradley and we're also Other reading screaming for pleasure and host of the Helmet for horror podcast we have also gotten lists of the five favorite horror films of various horror experts producers and writers that we're going to be sharing and commenting on as well when we left off chris we were on your second pick of your five so let me ask you what is your second pick my second pick uh, is <clears throat> to keep with the theme of uh, miserable families. <laughs> uh, Science Sonos Cold Fish from 2010. <clears throat> this is uh, a movie that is about a uh, pair of aquatic fish <laughs> fish salesmen. They two guys who own fish shops. One is a timid sort of loser with an incredibly beautiful wife and a teenage daughter. Uh, And he's like a loser who's not respected by his wife, who hates the daughter, who's a brat, and who's sort of out of control. And the daughter one night is caught shoplifting at a uh, grocery store. And the manager of the grocery store wants to press charges, but this other gentleman swoops in out of nowhere (laughs) who runs the huge, successful, exotic fish shop in town and sort of speaks on the daughter's behalf, saying, I'm the one who caught her shoplifting, but I don't think we should press charges, and talks to the the owner of the uh, grocery store who treats him like a celebrity who's just so thrilled to have this exotic fish dealer back here. And Dindin, who plays the the big shot uh, fish salesman, uh, offers the bratty teenage daughter a job at his shop, which is staffed almost exclusively by like beautiful young women in tight tank tops and short shorts. (laughs) And from there, our hero, the mild-mannered middle-aged loser, gets drawn into a web of totally depraved murder and violence by the other exotic fish dealer who has a plan to get out of a major debt that he owes to the mob by committing a poisoned murder, poisoning someone. And from there, it just gets more and more grisly (laughs) and violence-filled and uh, and full of uh, typical science ono darkness about sexuality as well. Mm -hmm. It's a very sexual and sexually dark movie. Dinden, who's a uh, famous Japanese comedian, plays the villain of the piece, and he's really the backbone of the movie. He he's gives, so good. Yeah, he gives yeah. Like an outsized comedic performance. And comedic, exactly. That, yeah, that could be a slog. I don't even know what to compare it to. Uh, it's like if Ray Romano were the star of, you know. Seven or something. It's, <laughs> it's this very dark movie that has this outsized comedic presence in the middle of it that makes it a really easygoing movie, uh, or not easygoing. Uh, uh, <laughs> very, um, uh, like it's an easily digestible film. It's very long, like all of some yeah, of those movies. Right, it goes by very, very quickly. And um, one of the things that's interesting about it. Uh, to me, the theme that I respond so much to is you have this guy who, you know, knows that he's not satisfying his wife and knows that his daughter has no respect for him. And so he sets off on this path of 
a little bit reluctantly at the beginning, but then embracing becoming a monster because, you know, his wife clearly likes the exotic fish dealer and his daughter's completely in awe of having a job there. And so he starts to imitate that guy and become that monster. But guess what? Your daughter still hates you and your wife still is not satisfied yeah. by you. That you can try and become that monster. You're just not him. You're just not as charming as him. You're just not as talented. You are just a fucking loser down in your core. And now you're a really shitty, evil person too <laughs> on top of it. And I think that that's one of the things that's, that's fascinating about this movie is its idea of like trying to sell your soul and like the devil ain't fucking buying, you know? Like you can't get anything in return for your soul. You always be a goldfish. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. Man, that's, that's an amazing uh, uh, summation. It's, it's so weird. That fucking movie's so weird. Like when so I first, the, the very beginning of it has this crazy frenetic energy and how it's putting up the title and all we're yeah. seeing is like, buying of food with rage and indifference yeah. and, you and know, putting, putting it microwave yeah like slam salt yeah yeah slam wham bam and the, the words are coming up this is a true story by the way or inspired yeah. by a true story and then you're watching this thing that can't possibly be a true yeah. story you're like well, how could there be these two fish guys these tropical fish guys yeah. and everybody's so enamored with tropical fish in this yeah. place that, very loosely based on yeah a story. It's, and, and, if you read the true story it's you know yeah, I, I, I don't know the true story. I just know the movie. And I was like, this is yeah. so, I, I love. Well, they were dog breeders for one. No, they were? Yeah. What a wonderful they, switch. The main right? character in his, in his family don't exist. There were basically like dog breeders who were doing the get out of debt scam where they poisoned a couple people, including a Yakuza guy and his driver. Oh, And then okay, killed another yeah. person like incidentally. Like, of course. So that's really interesting. And that's yeah. what I love too, is when people, because uh, I, I was watching the movie, I'm like, there's this uh, serendipity of the artist that you can feel. Like yeah. when he walks into, we walk into this ridiculously outsized tropical fish store. Yes. That's like a best buy of fish. And yeah. he's putting on surf music or Hawaiian music. And he's like yeah, dancing exactly. around and everybody's so charmed. It's like nobody, they're dismal yeah. and dour. And then they see him, they light up. And, oh, it's you know, so great. Yeah. Manager, manager. They're uh, the manager's and I ready to like. fish it is, but the, the, loser is like looking at this like yeah that golden fish yeah the giant like golden koi thing that he could never yeah. have in his store yeah and it, it, the whole movie hit me like an extremely violent japanese louis bunuel film it's oh, got like this great comparison yeah it's like yeah. bourgeoisie you know nobody yeah. gets to eat dinner but we have these i mean everything about fish and I, i'm laughing that that's that's what he uses to like get the manager to not uh, press charges. <laughs> he yes. says, oh, I have this great fish. He's like, I'm so pleased by him bringing yeah. up this fish that It'll I'm willing to let to this go. It'll be 12 feet long. You can come yeah. see it. <laughs> yeah, he's like, how big is it now? And he's like, yeah. and I'm sitting there going, what am I watching? <laughs> and then it gets crazier. I mean, just yeah. when you think, you know, it has this tone and then there is this weird tonal shift to real violence and craziness. Yeah. And yet, and, um, yeah. it's, as you said, it's, I, I, I wouldn't say it's, 
easy, but it's entertaining. It's wildly entertaining, like I Saw the Devil is it's, wildly entertaining. Yes, and it's Science Ono is a very stylish filmmaker, if you're not familiar Tag with Tag is uh, crazy. Yeah, so it, it's very lively, I think is the word I was looking for, is it's a movie that's very alive and yeah. full of movement and full of energy at all times, even as it gets grim. It's sort of never... Um, it's never feels slow paced. It sort of it sort of flies by this movie. Yeah. It's just so full of energy. Of Sono's horror movies from this decade, you mentioned Tag and Guilty of Romance and The Forest of Love. Uh, it's funny that as weird as this movie is, it's the easiest one to wrap your head around because at least there's no point in the movie where you go, what? Yeah. Right. <laughs> what's what's? It's not like on? it's not like Himazu where they go like, home and they're building the gallows for their daughter, and you're like, is yes. this happening in reality? It's just like there's one guy who's killing people, and you're like, okay, okay, I get that. Yeah. I can, I can, I can wrap my, yeah, I can wrap my head around this. <laughs> well, I was, I was, yeah, I was going to say that I really like creepy, uh, um, but oh, this yeah. is, yeah, but this is better than creepy. Yeah, you know, and uh, I didn't think it would be when I first, you know, I was like, ah, but because yeah. uh, a creepy is like that one, it has that moment where you just have to walk off the bridge without knowing if there's anything underneath you. you know? yeah. <laughs> and and uh, this movie like starts there <laughs> and just, <laughs> and, and by the time you're at the half hour point, you're like, I'm ready for anything. And yet you're really mm-hmm. not ready for where it's going to go. Uh, so I really, I appreciate that, that, uh, that uh, pick that uh, from all the films that I could think of, that's one that I would have forgotten about until you brought yeah. it up. <laughs> yeah. I feel like that's why I try not say, Oh, these are the best, but like, these are my favorites and ones that have stayed with me, you know, more than anything. And that's like, I don't want the responsibility of saying like best and measuring what best means, but I will say I fucking love cold fish. You should all see cold fish. It's crazy. It's great. You know? Our next list uh, from guest contributor, any introduction would not do justice to the man known as the writer of the purple rage, Mr. Joe R. Lansdale, Mm -hmm. prolific author of crime fiction, Western science fiction and horror fiction. uh, Most notable, the horror fiction being the night runners, the drive-in series, the short story Mm -hmm. collection by bizarre hands, which is amazing. And the novella Bubba Hotep, which was adapted by Don Coscarelli, one of the best horror yes. films from the last decade. Um, and there's a new documentary made by uh, Hansi Oppenheimer, All Hail the Popcorn King, all about Lansdale. Everyone should go out and see. Um, I don't know that one. I, this is the first time. Yeah, just, well. just coming out, hitting the festival circuit uh, this year. Oh, so boy. I'm excited to see, uh, check that out. Um, and I'm excited to read this list uh, with his comments intact. Uh, he puts in the autopsy of Jane Doe. He says, took me totally, uh, totally by surprise. And for me, had some real chills. Get Out. He says, just a great film in any genre and uh, covered a lot of them. And Get Out, of course, is the Jordan Peele film from 2017. He picks Crawl from this year, the Alexander mm-hmm. Aja film. Might be one in a long list of bad alligator movies, but this one, like Alligator of Old, really works for me. I like the characters and the simple premise and the look of it. Apex Predator all day long. Uh, next one is Lights Out David Sandberg's film from 2016 he says a simple premise that really creeped me out and finally Stakeland 2010 by Jim Mickle which is mm-hmm. an old fashioned vampire film with action and adventure and heck it has uh, Nick DeMisi and it, he's great Yes, sticking with his buddies on that one yeah well I would say like it totally is up his alley and it makes sense that they would go on to do Cold in July and the Happy Leonard TV series uh, yeah. they, they definitely share a mentality. Yeah, I like Cold in July. Too. 
Yeah, he picked like very solid horror movies. These are like, you know, you just picture like somebody like going to the multiplex to see a horror movie and seeing Crawl and being like, that was really fucking good. Like that's what that list has the feel of, of like no pretension, just those yeah. really solid horror movies. That defines me. In fact, I had ignored Lights Out entirely for the reason of like, ah, looks like some crappy pseudo horror movie that just some thriller that got put into the screens. I watched it since I was so surprised to find it on Lansdale's list. And it is a joy. I really enjoyed it. Again, uh, it's yeah, a it's solidly a made book. film. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm glad that I got an opportunity to see that. And I, I like to crawl a lot. thought crawl was a fun movie. So these are, yeah, these are movies I go out to see. <laughs> yeah. doubt. So I enjoy that about it as well. Um, you steak, are you Stakeland fan, Scott? Oh, I'm a big Stakeland fan. Yeah, I'm Jim Mickle. He's one of those guys uh, that is in that small cadre of low budget filmmakers like Ty West and everybody that yeah. just had that whole thing happening in the uh, 2000s and then going into the the teens. That I think really. Yeah, not everything obviously is a, a glass eye picks thing. But like when I I talked with Fessenden, I said, you know, you were like Paris in the twenties. You just had all <laughs> these expatriate guys that weren't going to fit in anywhere else, all coming around and and making art, and it, it they kind of fed each other. And Mickle was one of those that really stood out. I can't think of many of his films that uh, didn't really hit at least the bar of that's yeah. a good genre piece. Yeah. I'm always excited by his work. And I thought Stakeland was beautiful. It does what I love ballsy, low budget films to do. This is a quest uh, road movie, apocalyptic yeah. vampire thing made for the amount of money of like seven new cars. You know? yeah. So it's like, it's amazing what he did, you know, it's set in rural Pennsylvania. Resisted. Yeah, it's something I resisted because it came out so close to Zombieland. Mm. I just assumed it was going to be another goofy post-apocalypse, you know, sort of thing. Yeah. I didn't expect, you know, like a really well-drawn character study with it again, uh, you know, a young man and a father surrogate just trying yeah. to stick together and, and to learn how to survive. Uh, and I'm glad it really took its premise seriously. And uh, yeah, that we kind of follow these characters along the way. So yeah, it's it was a big rather sp- as well. Yeah. It's rather smartly written, and uh, uh, Kelly McGillis, I think, that was the first mm-hmm. time I had seen her. And then she was in The Innkeepers, I think, after yes. that. Yeah, the, the Ty West. Yeah, so it was great to see her uh, in, in a movie as well. And uh, Nietzsche's always magnificent. You know, he's just, uh, I, I even like Late Phases, the, the yeah, werewolf that's movie. A good oh, yeah, that's I like enjoyable. it. There are, there's, there really are not a lot of great werewolf movies, I no. think. So when something like Late Faces comes out, it feels like a revelation. It's crazy. Yeah, when it's pretty good. B plus. That might be a top five werewolf movie all time. Solid. Yeah, (laughs) it's absolutely true. On next list is from one of our film writing heroes, Outlaw Vern, the author of Psychology, Yippie Moviegoer, and the novel Nike Town, who is celebrating his 20th anniversary, reviewing the films of La Cinema over at outlawvern.com. Uh, he's got a great, uh, for anyone who's never read him before, you should go and check out just what he's been doing for the last 20 years. He wrote up a, a piece kind of uh, going over what he's been doing, and uh, it's a great guideline to why he's so terrific. Yeah, um, one of the true great critics of the online epoch, like online emerging critics. Mm. It's really fascinating. Writes about direct-to-video uh, cinema, a lot of horror cinema, a lot of more disreputable genres, and is brilliant. 
Yeah, and he's uh, somebody also who you know is known mostly as a professor professor of action cinema, but yeah. uh, is a master of horror cinema as well. He has every year he does the slasher search in October where he tries to find obscure slasher movies <laughs> um, and you know give them a shot, see how they are. Uh, so Vern's list. Um, which he did go from five to one. I don't know if that means it's a preference, but this is how he put them. Don't, and uh, he has commentary with them as well. Don't breathe. He says, giddy fun horror movies, uh, dark and brutal and goes too far, but is also full of thrilling, masterful set pieces and nervous laughter. The only one on my list, I wish had become a series. <laughs> um, number four, he says, train to Busan. He says, every time I think it's time to retire a zombie movie, somebody comes up with a brilliant new way to do it. This is the only way, this is the only one that made me cry because of the great characters. And there's a scene that made me think of facing zombie them in terms of a terminal disease. So it was mm. a, pers- a personal pick for him. Uh, mm. The third way he says hereditary, which hasn't come up yet. Ari Aster's film from 2018. He says many horror fans resent the already or acclaimed horror movies, the ones with respectable stars and highfalutin intentions. Those sometimes called elevator elevated horror by doofuses who don't know how to appreciate horror at its natural level. I know he's speaking right to you, sir. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but I think my friends are crazy to write off a movie as spectacular as Hereditary. Yes, it has Tony Collette in a performance that deserved an Oscar and deals with grown-up shit like trauma and grief and mental illness. But also, it's a total thrill ride going from extreme gut punch to darkly hilarious to an out-there ending, reminiscent of everything from The Wicker Man to 2001 to The Evil Dead. How does this get lumped in with the slow burns? It has... Child decapitation, self decapitation, Gabriel Byrne on fire. I love this one. Yes. Uh, so, you have something to say about that. Number two, he picked uh, We Are What We Are, not the original, but the mm-hmm. nickel version from 2013, the American version. He says, No offense to the powerfully disturbing Mexican original, but I prefer Mickle's gender swapped American tale. It's about growing up and questioning the beliefs you were raised with, in this case, uh, an annual cannibal meal. And number one, he says, The, the Woman. Uh, Lucky McKee's film from 2011 says a supposed family man finds a fair woman on his hunting trip, decides to lock her up in his shed and civilize her. This is such a one-of-a-kind story about misogyny and abuse and how they passed on from fathers to sons. The woman herself is a literal monster, but she's kind of the heroine of the movie, and the ending is so crazy and strangely beautiful, it was easy to determine this was my number one of the decade. So I guess he did wow. that his favorite. of the, um, I was going to say about Kotoko, actually, that she's sort of the, the monster and the heroine at the same time. Yeah. This was the only list. I, you know, we had our list locked in when we started getting these. This was the only one when he brought up the woman that I went, oh, should I swap that out for something? Yeah. Now, I don't, I, I, once I simmered down a little, I was like, no, I, I like my list, and I, I don't know that I necessarily put the woman above it. But that's such a striking movie yes. that I'm surprised it's not on more people's lists. And it really is an unforgettable uh, experience. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Lucky McKee, I mean, between that and May, I mean, those are two really, really strong films, genre yeah. pieces. And, uh, I mean, the woman, uh, it's Jack Ketchum was always such a complex yeah. writer uh, because he is he a misogynist or is he commenting on misogyny yeah and so many of his stories and uh the woman is one of those that you know you're just like wow and it's it's um oh my god mcintosh pollyanna mcintosh correct yeah that's her name right mm-hmm. the yeah. lead actress who just yeah well. and she just made a a, a directive a sequel yeah. to the woman she yeah. did a sequel and i've also i just recently saw offspring the offspring yeah the right film. that's 
That's oh a bizarre God. one. That's a stinker. That's yeah. Not, not everything's a home run. No, uh, no, no. Just, that was. It's the fucking high scrapes kit from Thunderdome. It's, it's the problem. <laughs> yeah. Well, that and uh, the the detective or the sheriff i think he's played by like uh one of the actors oh. that used to be in cronenberg's early films it's yeah. like stephen lack or something and you're like oh man he yeah. hasn't gotten any better oh, but, uh, sheriff that's terrible <laughs> yeah it was terrible it was terrible it's a bad movie it's yeah. a bad movie but the woman is really strong i think lucky mckee he's just got uh he's got a good grasp of uh hurt yeah. women women and hurt and, and it's it such just, a bizarre idea, but it never feels bizarre when you're watching it. I guess that's a little in common with Coldfish, where it, it never feels like this very outlandish idea. It's amazing how grounded it, that movie feels. Yeah. So, yeah, uh, my third pick, it's interesting. Uh, I think Outlaw Vern said something about hereditary. Tony Collette should have won an Oscar. And what I'll say is that my third pick uh, has a performance in it that I think uh, for a horror actress, it was Oscar worthy. And that's for actress Alex Esso. The movie is Starry Eyes, came out in 2014. Uh, Kevin Kolsch and Douglas Widmeyer, who went on to do... Uh, the uh, remake of uh, Pet Cemetery, uh, but I think Starry Eyes is their is their crowning achievement right now. Uh, and the movie Starry Eyes it's very similar uh, to uh, Nicholas Winding Refn's uh, Neon Demon in in theme. They have the same kind of theme going, but it really tells that story a lot differently. And uh, Starry Eyes is obviously far less of a budget uh, than Refn had for his film. Uh, a much lower budget, I would say. Got very little promotion. Very few people even knew that it existed. And now it's slowly starting to get uh, uh, its reputation through streaming. And I think Shudder may have picked it up. Uh, I think there was a, uh, a, a, Blue, uh, a Blu-ray release that I have of it. So it's starting to really get some energy behind it. But Starry Eyes followed an anonymous actress uh, her name is Sarah it's in LA it's her version of Los Angeles and it's interesting to see the movie as a perspective piece uh, it's an LA where movie directors you know who are up and coming are living in vans <laughs> you know they basically live in an abandoned van uh, waitressing jobs are basically uh, just as cutthroat as any uh, cattle calls going to be for any role uh, the guy who runs the business the managers like yeah, I can get anybody to do this job and people are living literally living and dying on whether or not they get that waitressing job. And so Sarah lives in a motel, rundown place, a group of wannabe artists. And they're also kind of, they're friends because of proximity. It's interesting. I've seen this being done in a couple new independent films of recent, uh, one called, uh, 1B, uh, 1BR, one bedroom. And uh, basically the idea of how you almost become a cult member in LA when you join uh, a one bedroom apartment kind of complex where you have to get along with everybody. And there's kind of that feel in, in this movie as well, that there's like wannabe friends and you can tell that Sarah, and it's one of the things that I like about this character is she's not entirely likable. She is uh, someone that we are entering this world through, but she's kind of false. Uh, she has avarice. Uh, she does glad hand people. Uh, she's friendly, 
are polite but not friendly. And so she endures the friends that she has. And it's almost as if the people that she has, these hanger-ons, these wannabe directors and everything, they truly like her. But it seems as if she uh, really just doesn't uh, connect with them uh, on a long, a large level. So it ends up where Sarah gets an audition for a horror film that's called The Silver Scream. And so it already sounds really trashy. It's your typical thing going downtown to a strip mall. And that's going to be the studios. And it's a place called Astraeus yeah. Films. Uh, and uh, so it's a well-regarded film studio, but it's uh, really small. So for her to get this is kind of like a step up for her. And she's very nervous. And at the audition, she gets to meet the casting director uh, and her assistant or his assistant. I can't remember if it's her, him or her. But um, the, they're from hell. They're the assistants from hell. They're basically giving her nothing. They sit there and they are complete ciphers. And uh, they are basically exp- uh, expressionless. They don't speak to her. And she's having this uh, audition where they're giving her nothing. And so it goes really badly. And she runs out of the room into the ladies' room. And when she gets into the bathroom we see something of her that's really intriguing and disturbing. She violently beats herself for her poor performance. She violently pulls her hair and we hear her neck vertebrae actually crack. Interesting enough, the casting assistant is walking in when this happens, sees it happen, and suddenly she's really impressed with her. <laughs> she offers a second edition if Sarah will allow herself to go to that emotional spot again, that place where she punished herself fascinated by this punishment and so they want to see what they call the real Sarah and she's in this really disturbing thing that when I'm watching it I'm like going man this is like hitting on every I want to be loved kind of thing that I've ever had in my life I'm watching this woman (laughs) totally vulnerable totally ashamed and she agrees to do this thing she's going to channel this energy it's degrading it's like showing, it's not like acting. It's like showing a real vulnerable part of herself. It, uh, to me, it was like akin to uh, the stripper who has to keep on the pasties. If she takes off the pasties, then it suddenly she feels degraded and dirty. She's mm-hmm. okay as long as she has that. And it's kind of like that's where Sarah goes emotionally. And she falls on, she goes like angry, feral animal. She goes so far, she starts to convulse on the floor. And they're just completely excited. So she gets a call back for a screen test and it gets even weirder from there. It takes place in a pitch black room. She's given direction by a disembodied voice. Bright lights start to rhythmically rhythmically flash. And then, and then, (laughs) just when it doesn't seem like things are going to get any weirder, it starts to get really strange and she decides to go home into her quote unquote real world. And it starts to get really bizarrely violent. So what's interesting about this movie, once again, we have uh, satire. There's certainly satire running through this. Uh, There's also this thing of a really interesting exploration of some characters. At first, those characters are, are funny, and they seem as if they're kind of sketched. But later on in the movie, they start to exude more 
real emotion as she starts seemingly become less emotional, less human. They have a warmth to them that makes it much more disturbing as what happens in the movie starts to happen to them. And so what makes Starry Eyes so good to me is that it's a really fleshed out character study. And there's a duality to everybody. You know, characters may look friendly, but most of them carry a, a real deep evil inside of them. Some of it is a little bit arch. There's a, a meeting with a famous person uh, involved with the studio that uh, can play like uh, something out of a Dan Curtis trilogy, a terror thing. But even that I find somewhat endearing for this movie because when it does get right into the dark and dirty, it goes all the way. I mentioned Lucky McKee earlier. There's a few moments in May that feel very real to me. And this is another one that uh, has these very realistic moments where the the violence uh, doesn't feel staged. It feels like there's this crazy stumbling. Uh, somebody mentioned angst before, and there's that kind of thing. Like the the, the killer's almost like stumbling through this uh, rage of terror, and so Starry Eyes explores this evil shadow. And one of the things that I think that horror movies are really good for is giving us a safe handshake with that shadow self. And this movie's all about the shadow self. It says that we're really only as nice as our options allow us to be. If our options were different, we wouldn't be so kind to our fellow man. If our options change, that evil shadow is permitted to come out. And the studio gives her a certain level of indulgence to be able to do that. And the studio can mean whatever uh, big bad that you have in your life, big temptation that you have in your life. Uh, but the idea is that the horror movie says that that evil's been with us the whole time, that Sarah really doesn't change. Sarah goes through a metamorphosis. She goes through the pupa stage and ends up being this death head moth. And I thought that was a really cool way to do kind of the uh, celebrity and fame eats all and destroys all. It's Kali that you kind of get with uh, Neon Demon. I kind of like the honesty of this one. Something about having it be more on a down and dirty, right off Sunset Strip kind of LA just made the story feel more gritty, believable, realistic, and it could happen to anyone. You don't have to be a major model. All you have to do is want something enough in a town that's ready to eat you alive. And so I really like Star guys yeah i think um it's almost like i consider it a trilogy those two films you mentioned starry eyes and uh neon demon uh the other one being the sort of east coast representation of that which is um uh most beautiful island by anna essentia oh yeah i forgot all about that movie yeah the three films that kind of you know like you said they have sort of a satire of the the audition process and they're trying to make it, you know, the, the woman who's exploited, you know, by trying to get to the next level and struggling to, you know, get where she is. Um, and then finding this completely surreal and completely, you know, sinister, you know, side to the, uh, whatever the business is that she's involved in. And all three of them have really significant bathroom scenes as the transformation in the bathroom. And I think they all, have that kind of, you know, what's the one place, you know, where the intimacy can really be too close, you know, it would be in yeah. the bathroom. Um, but uh, yeah, Starry Eyes, I think, in terms of an idea, couldn't be better. Just, you know, this LA as this 
nocturnal hell for anyone who's trying to you know make ends meet and actually make a name for themselves out there and how vulnerable uh young women are specifically but i like that you talked about how she's kind of a selfish horrible person on top of it anyway right because (laughs) how else could she survive going through this sort of thing um yeah it's almost like the blood spilled is the kindness, right? It's exactly. like the, they're all the sacrificial lambs. Yes. And I love how Coulson and Widmayer, who sound like they should be characters in the thing, right? Um, <laughs> uh, yeah. Really like use her both as a conduit to this like strange, you know, sub reality that we kind of fall into in this urban nightmare. Uh, all at the same time, doing the American Mary thing of like following her transformation. Like you talked about in Neon Demon, the kind of transformation from uh, young, hopeful, you know, Mulholland, beginning of Mulholland Drive, you know, want to be actress yeah. and be model, uh, turned into something, you know, completely corrupted and dangerous. Yeah. And Neon Demon and Starry Eyes both have this moment where there's a portal which is like this flashing light, like you're hypnotized or you're irradiated with yeah. whatever it is. Yeah, yeah. And I, I think that's so freaking cool. It is. It's a very cool movie. I, I, I mean, it's cool that they got to do a chance to do Pet Cemetery afterwards, but I kind of wish that we got another original film from these guys. You know, I'd be curious yeah. to see like, where their themes kind of went from there. Uh, I'm glad they cashed the paycheck, though. <laughs> I'm glad that they're getting of work. Of course. Obviously, you can say about anybody. <laughs> um, <laughs> Uh, Chris hasn't seen this one, so I'm just going to say, Chris, you should see it. Oh, boy. Yeah. I hope you enjoy it. Yes, I will keep my eye out for it. I was not even aware of it. Although I got to say, I thought the new Pet Cemetery was so bad that hearing So did I. Is, you know, oh, okay. So good. Yeah. I'll keep my mind open then. <laughs> yeah, I, I, can't, I can't tell you how disappointed I was knowing who made the new Pet Cemetery. And going, yeah, I know that they're doing this little switcheroo, but that's uh, these guys know characters. Okay. And then I could not yeah, there's believe something about Pet Cemetery that screamed starry eyes to me at all. Yeah. No, nothing at all, and nothing that screamed Pet Cemetery. Right, I was right, like, right. What the fuck was this? I was like, the the heart of a man is stonier. Well, let's just make it all about the wife doesn't like. The, the idea of talking about death. He's just a yeah. put upon guy. Yeah, yeah. It was, it was like a bro version of pet cemetery. It's really not my fault. It's <laughs> these idiot women is driving me crazy. <laughs> and of course, turning the, you know, monster into the, the daughter, not the son is yeah. come on guys. <laughs> yeah. Uh, don't blame it on the women. Uh, yeah. I'm from star eyes, especially with such a strong and interesting female, you know, lead, you would think that they, uh, wouldn't have that opinion about it. Yeah, and I will say that Esso just acts the hell out of this. There are a few, uh, it's something that I talk about with film uh, fans, horror film fans especially, about how many great performances are lost because they're in horror films. And there are several movies that the actor or the actress do such a great job in selling a movie that could just be middle of the road at best, but their acting really takes it to that next level and they just never get any kind of acclaim because it's a horror film and people, you know, whether it's getting more appreciation now or not, I mean, Tony Collette uh, in hereditary, give me a break. I mean, there's so much humor in that despair it's it's such a great performance it's it's incredible we're going to move on to the next list two words to defend the continuing need for physical media for me heather buckley ah 
film journalist, special effects supervisor, podcaster, award-winning producer of over 160 outstanding behind-the-scenes and retrospective documentaries. Uh, Heather has recently moved into full feature producing on Jen Wexler's film, The Ranger, Mm -hmm. which is terrific. And you can see it. it, uh, It's on disc and you can see it on Shutter. Um, But yeah, Heather Buckley is definitely someone whose opinion on this I definitely wanted to get. And what she's written with her list is emotionally devastating, transgressive and high art, philosophical and painfully true. And her five favorite horror films of the decade are Raw, directed by Julia DeCourneau, 2017. Mm-hmm. The House That Jack Built, Lars von Trier, 2018. The Love Witch by Anna Biller, 2016. Annihilation. And Mother by Darren Aronofsky, 2017. Yeah, oh, oh. Yeah, I, I think Heather rocks. She's just rocks. And I just got back from... Um, Beyond Fest, and I got to see the Al Adamson documentary that she produced mm. with David Gregory. I Fantastic. would say, if you, you know, you pick up a, gr- a great movie that just got released on Blu-ray, I'd say one out of five chance she was the one who produced the oh, excellent yeah. supplements, and they're just... They're the reason that, you know, you should still get discs, you know? I yeah. mean, you're not going to put that stuff on streaming. Yeah, even things like The Long Riders. She, she yeah, to, yeah. She does, so it's not like it's just horror movies. Or, she did Cabin or, Boy. No, it's just yeah. great movies in general. It's not just horror films. Yeah, and her movie picks are are what I would expect. You know, I, yeah. I, I love her style, and uh, she's pretty uncompromising about stuff. I, I would think that if she made this list now, she'd probably put Joker on there as well, because I know she's very, very high on uh, on Joker. Oh, interesting. And you think she'd see it as a horror movie? Yeah, she saw it as... Well, I think she saw it as a horror movie. I saw it as a horror movie. I watched it. Yeah. I was like, oh, that's definitely... It can't be anything else. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's a horror movie. I don't know yeah. what anybody would think it could possibly be. But her picks are really interesting because some of them are infuriating to me. And I can't, I can't <laughs> wait till I get to talk to her again and, and talk a, a little bit about this. I, I can't... You know, it's like the house that Jack built. There's parts of that that are so incredibly laugh out loud good. Like yeah. I was like his his OCD. Like when he's worried about the drop of blood. That whole yes. sequence is fucking amazing. Yeah, absolutely incredible stuff. And even some of the uh, the violence is good and transgressive. But the the framing device irritates the hell out of me and yet i don't see how you could do that movie without the framing device so it's kind of like one of those weird things yeah like, okay but with I, von trier i always feel like when he does stuff that pretentious he's very aware of it and that that is that framing device is a joke that's played completely seriously sort of like the opening of uh, antichrist oh like opening of right. antichrist right he's as a comedic sequence you know? <laughs> You hear him talk about it. Right. And, and certainly, you know, he has that famous anecdote about Martin Scorsese came up to him and was like, oh, my God, I saw Antichrist in the beginning. is so beautiful. It's so amazingly beautiful. And he said, oh, what? It's just black and white and slow motion with classical music. Like, that's hack work. And he realized he was saying it to the man who <laughs> was Raging Bull. Right. <laughs> Except for Raging Bull. That's a great yeah, one. <laughs> exactly. Like, well, that guy's clearly a believer. And he's, he's not. So, but I agree with you, you know, I like House That, House That Jack Built, Mother, and even The Love Witch are three movies I kind of hate, but I love that they're on her list. I, I think that horror movies 
uh, have a duty to be provocative and to be mm -hmm. divisive. And if there's a, a universal agreement on a horror movie or it's universally digested and digestible to audiences, then it hasn't necessarily done their job. And so when a movie like Mother makes me hate it, I, you know, I respect the people who come out in defense of it. You know what I mean? But yeah. for real, like, they, like, that movie is going after me and it got me. You know? Yeah. It got, you know? Honestly, like, Mother, if you just take it, you know, exactly as it seems without all the allegories and the, yeah. the biblical stuff. I mean, I think that the best sequence in that movie, other than the Michelle Pfeiffer batting around Jennifer Lawrence like she's a little mouse, yeah. is... Um, where people keep sitting when they're having the party and people yes. keep sitting on a shelf and she keeps begging them to get off the goddamn shelf. Yeah. And you know that that shelf is just going to collapse eventually. Yeah. That's a real like, like, anxiety-inducing moment. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And it's very Boonwell meets uh, a little bit of, uh, oh, my gosh, how can I not think of his name? It's uh, like Repulsion. What? Uh, uh, Polanski. Polanski. So it's like yeah. Boonwell meets I mean, uh, Polanski. Zalowski. Zalowski for it. it Zalowski, yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. It's kind of got a heightened... A sense of like relationship anxiety yeah. to an almost absurd degree. Yeah. But I think that, you know, when those movies that are made to provoke, provoke me, you know, I got to give them the respect for having done it. You know? Oh yeah. I loved it when I saw it. I was like, wow, this is great. I, I, I disliked it after Aronofsky broke the cardinal rule as far as I'm concerned, which is if you're going to make a movie full of symbolism and allegory and metaphor, and you just push that out on the audience, never, ever, ever sit there and go, well, this is what it's all about. Oh my and God, then Martin, give us this yeah. lame-ass bullshit yeah. fucking, oh, it's the biblical. You got to be shitting me. I was looking <laughs> at his portrait of an asshole artist. Yeah, and I was like, that is ballsy. Jesus yeah. Christ is, uh, uh, you know, I was like, go oh, give me a break. Are you kidding me? You're going to be that obvious, that arch with it? And, yeah. and Our so, friend Martin Kessler loves telling a story of how he saw a screening of it. And then Aronofsky came, off, came out afterwards. And the first thing he said was, this is a movie about uh, a mother, not your mother, not my mother, all of our mothers. Oh, boy. <laughs> I was like, whoa, oh, no. <laughs> yeah. And, and I love Aronofsky's Yeah, I love Aronofsky's work, and I thought that that movie had a lot. Something that I'll say about all of Heather's stuff, and I can't wait till I talk to her again. I can mention what I saw in this, which is there is a really dark sense of humor that runs through most of these picks. Uh, An Annihilation, yeah. maybe not as much, but House of Jack built raw, definitely. Love yeah. Witch, most certainly, and Absolutely. Mother. There's yeah. there's a very dark. Uh, Stygian sense of humor about it. And and I think that that's what's really great. And that's something that I see in some of the best work. Uh, I mean, Hooper constantly said that uh, there's great comedy in Texas Chainsaw. Yeah. And uh, guys like uh, Polanski, there is really nasty humor. Well, Polanski comedy. makes, yeah, makes comedies almost. You know, yeah. those movies are, a lot of them, especially... You know, like the tenant is is barely even a horror movie. You know, and Rosemary's Baby, you know, is extremely funny dark humor. Mm -hmm. You know, and and it's the reasons that the people were nominated for Oscars on that movie that they were is for comedic reasons, not for terrifying reasons. Yeah, know? yeah. Well, to uh, continue talking about Heather Buckley, she is producing an upcoming uh, full core film, Inside which has been sneaking around behind the curtain at uh, Frontier's platform at Cannes and uh, London Fright Fest. And that is going to be the horror feature debut of writer, producer, director, Elise Solomon. 
Um, she is the uh, talent behind Against the Wind Productions. Wow. She's producer of such films as Paper Heart and Smashed and director of uh, the documentary Lost Wild Ones. Inside uh, it has gotten great buzz. I'm really excited to check it out once it's around. And she has contributed the next list. And her list is Bone Tomahawk, mm-hmm. uh, S. Craig Zaylor, 2015, Enemy, Dennis Villeneuve, 2013, of Canada and Spain, The Ritual, Hereditary, and The Taking of Deborah Logan by Adam Robitel, 2014, which you had mentioned before. Previously. Yeah. Wow, yeah. what a list. I mean, yeah. what a great list. Enemy is so killer. Have you seen Enemy? I've not seen Enemy. Enemy Everybody's really, told really me. Great. I don't like Vinou. That's the only one of his movies that I like. And I just love that one. I just love that one. I think it really plays. And I think it's, it's a movie that could be like Mother, that it just so uh, skirts pretentiousness at all times that it works is almost miraculous. It's a movie where the style and the performance from Jake Gyllenhaal need to be perfect, and they are. Everything wow. is perfect in its style. And so it's really, it's, that one's killer. That's one that I would say, that also I wouldn't have thought of as a horror movie until it was on people's list. And then it's like, well, of course it is. Yeah. What was I thinking? Of course yeah. that's a horror movie. Mm-hmm. I, I know several people have gone back to it of recent, and yeah. especially thir- during October. So that made me really interested in finding it. Now, uh, Zaylor, uh, S. Craig Zaylor's Bone Tomahawk, that was like the craziest find that I had yeah. ever had because it was like January 1st, it showed up on Netflix and all I saw was all of these people that were in it, including Kurt Russell, I'd never yeah. heard of it. I said, this must suck. Yeah. January <laughs> release on Netflix, it's gotta be terrible. And here's this movie, it's under a million dollars, I think. It's a period piece that's over two and a half hours long yeah. with an ensemble cast and incredibly crazy special effects. And yeah. it's, it shouldn't work. Nothing about it should work. And I will say that I really was looking forward to what Zayla was going to do after this. And I don't think he's ever even gotten close to the idiosyncrasy of this film. Not at works all. works so yeah. well. I well, mean, it's I, also like he's, his strengths and weaknesses you can see in Bone Tomahawk now, now that he's sort of repeated them over and over. But Bone Tomahawk is still like this blast when you see it. You yeah. know, the first time you catch it, it's just like, you know, it's a cliche to compare things to Shotgun Blast, especially his type of filmmaker. But it really is, yeah. especially once it gets towards the end. It's really like this thing is, is kicking my ass. Yeah. yeah. And the, the acting in it, the ensemble acting is fantastic. Yeah. I mean, uh, the Kurt Russell and, uh, oh, my God, um, Jenkins, Richard Jenkins. Their connection through that movie is so great. And that humor works so well. It's almost like the Fargo era uh, Cohen <laughs> brothers, right? Yeah. But done in the West and done with uh, a, a sharper, uh, in, in my uh, estimation, yeah. kind of a sharper uh, vision on what he was trying to do. Even though I'm not quite sure when you watch the entire movie, what it is, you know, it's yeah. these, these uh, Hills have eyes kind of guys that yeah, are out well, there. That's the thing is like that movie, if you haven't seen his other movies, goes down easier if you're not like aware of his extremely questionable racial politics oh my god you can go to bone tomahawk and be like that i don't have to read into what the meaning of these others is you know like i don't have they're just you know yeah it's best exactly. to treat them have eyes they're like Salvini or the descent you know where yeah you know, right 
to the cave creatures and it's like that's what it is now is them trying desperately to get away yeah. from these cannibals yeah know? yeah instead of it being like is he just native americans or mud people like is <laughs> what is he i don't want to think about this anymore yeah you know? yeah I, I never even thought in those terms quite honestly yeah. but uh, I, I i will say that it's one of those movies that i usually recommend to people uh if they haven't seen it because it's yeah. such a bizarre it's that wonderful hybrid vigor yeah. uh, but i just think it's such a great if you have to call i think all movies are stunts first off yeah. i mean mm. sooner or later they all come down to stunt but that's a great stunt i mean to yeah. sit there and spend that and i think he had it's done it right after oh to recommend to horror fans too I yeah say. i don't necessarily recommend it to like general audiences but if somebody's like i like horror movies what do i need to see that maybe i haven't seen it's a great recommendation yeah and i i think that i if i remember correctly his family his parents were murdered or something, something happened major like there was a major oh, psychic really? destruction before he made that film Oh, shit. Nice. So he was out of the biz. Uh, I, I don't know how long he was in before that, but he was out, and then he made this. And so it just has this feeling of like, bleh. Like Polanski's Macbeth. Yeah. Yeah. Well, mm. shit. That's one that still should make many lists. I mean, that's yeah. just incredible. But uh, Elise Solomon, I have to take a look at that. I had heard nothing from Heather Buckley about this. This movie is re released already or wrapped at least uh, inside. I'm not sure where they're at with the film. Um, it's you know been doing the festivals. They've been uh, the frontier is at Cannes is the place where they take it to kind of show them what they've shot or give them an idea of the movie. Okay, to get criticism from it, and I guess it performed really positively there. So I'm not sure where they're at, but it's. Uh, definitely been yeah they've been working on it so i'm really interested yeah. i'm really interested in Field, and what's the title of it again inside inside yeah i i highly trust uh heather buckley's eye on this and her pulse on even full-length stuff now yeah so i'm really intrigued to see what this does yeah you know it won't be bullshit right involved. yeah absolutely no she did a great job on the ranger so i'm very excited for inside uh i'm gonna move on to my third pick we're gonna we're talking a little bit about comedy horror hybrids so i'm going to move into a horror comedy that i enjoy i love me some murder by proxy stories mm -hmm. i love amr in brain damage i love walks <laughs> enoch i love bernard phillips and god told me to i love the freddy who's out for revenge i love the parasite in baby blood any insatiable demon that takes over the mind of a rational person and turns them into a dependent bloodthirsty renfield that's my kind of horror movie. I love that scenario. And so I love Alice Lowe's Prevenge, in mm. which the puppeteer holding the homicidal strings is the unborn baby inside of Ruth, who's slashing her way down a list of people she holds responsible for a tragedy in her personal life. That's literally all the movie is. We're with her from the very beginning to the very end. And this is uh, writer-director Alice Lowe playing Ruth. Right. Um, so her character is the movie. I mean, her performance is the movie. If it had been even slightly off, it would not have worked. And she hammers it home and just nails it. What I really love about this film is how empathetically it understands the loneliness of pregnancy, mm. the loss of identity and personal will while you're, you know, walking around with this um, big stomach and with this thing inside of you, uh, which low 
obviously perfectly understands since she directed and performed in this right. film while seven months pregnant for real. I know. It's like so, it's, it, it, talk about stunt, right? Yeah. Watching this movie, feeling nauseous. <laughs> Only Gonzo move on her part. I love yeah. Yeah, uh, and the baby even makes a cameo towards the end, uh, which is great. <laughs> the her actual daughter. Um, what you got here is a basic uh, pregnant bride wore black scenario, um, where she's walking down a list of these people who are more or less, you know, deserving of you know cer- to certain different kind degrees. Kind of to blame. Yeah, yeah, kind of to blame over Very an accident. Like bride wore black. Exactly. Yeah, where some guy where it kind of becomes an interesting character study because one person seems like a complete just a complete scumbag and you're like, he doesn't deserve to be out there walking around preying on people. And then the other one is super nice and seems like the nicest guy on the planet, completely undeserving of Ruth's horrible retribution. Um, and you're really willing to, to take the time to get into this character with warts and all. She's Ruth as a character is brilliant and funny, but she's also desperate, tormented and a little judgy of others considering her uh, own less than ideal situation. Um, But it's through the supporting cast of victims that we get the additional insight of how we judge and misjudge others based on their lifestyle. That's surprisingly deep for a horror comedy about a fetus demanding its mother commit bloody murders. Uh, I find this movie hilarious and tragic and totally disarming a great leap forward. Um, after uh, Alice Lowe's excellent screenwriting and performance in Sightseers, which come a few years before. Oh, I, I never made the connection. Yeah, yeah, that's her in Sightseers. Um, and I want to talk more about it, but I feel like if you haven't seen it, I don't want to like spoil anything else. It's so funny and so it's sad so at the same time. so fucking funny. That's yeah. the main thing, is that people don't know who Alice Lowe is. She was one of the cast members on Garth Meringue's Dark Place with Richard Iotti and the, um, the guy from the, what we do in the shadows and Matt Barry Matt Barry. and uh, she's just out of that school of comedy. And so she's like as funny as it is. And what's really surprising to me about this movie is how phenomenally well-directed it is, yeah. you know, that it, it's really, uh, it could easily just be like a movie that's funny and maybe not necessarily, you know, like a lot of actors when they step behind the camera, really good performance, you know, funny, but not like this movie that necessarily has a sense of plot or pacing or structure or style. And this is a very stylish movie. And Mm -hmm. she uses a lot of interesting stylistic gestures that all work. And I think the horror really plays in it too. Like when it gets violent, the violence is extremely effective. The violence is not campy, which is the risk you always run in a horror comedy, you know, Mm -hmm. that the violence to have some measure of weightlessness to it because it's almost a punchline in certain scenes, you know, but she sort of ratchets up the tension. And there are moments where it reminds me of Kotoko, which we were talking about on the last episode of just like, insane woman with a baby like going too far you know <laughs> the, even the baby itself the prevenge baby as they like to call it you know during the production um is a you know a funny character like you know it's funny to hear her uh hearing the baby tell her you know you're such a fucking loser you gotta kill him and things like that but it's also deeply upsetting that yeah. you know this woman is walking around with this in her head and yeah. then she starts questioning herself whether this is she's actually hearing her unborn child or if she's just lost her mind. Yeah. Well, um, it's such a great yeah. concept because you have this whole thing that's happening hormonally to every woman who goes yeah. through a pregnancy. And it's really simple to look at this as it could be her id. 
You know, it's just like, yeah. you know, all the politeness is fucking gone. My feet are the size of elephant yeah. feet. Fuck y'all. And so every little thing is taking her off of that. Yeah, there's this uh, thing that. that's changing you. It's literally yeah. changing you, changing yeah. your body, making you crave things you didn't ever crave before in your life, you know, making you tired, making you irritable, making you murderous feeling, you know? Yeah. And you see, you know, pregnant women go through that. Obviously, there are uh, countless... Um, horror films, classic horror films dealing with pregnancy. And, um, and I mentioned baby blood is one of them. Um, and this one's definitely belongs in the higher pantheon of those. Um, and we were talking about Polanski too, in terms of comedy and horror, right? The scenes where she's uh, being seen by the, the midwife at the hospital and, uh, (laughs) she's getting really, really irritable because she's talking about, you know, well, if you're having problems, we can contact social services. It reminds me of the scenes in, in, um, at the nail salon, uh, oh my in, uh, repulsion. repulsion yeah where it's just you can feel her anxiety you know you know it's a completely banal you know you know regular mundane situation but her you know knowing that what's going on in her head at that time just you know makes it unbearable uh, but in a way that you know is also like a comedy sketch in a way you know? right well that's the thing i mean i i hold a high bar on horror comedy uh most of the time i don't think it works mainly for this things that i had heard you guys talk about before which is usually the horror you suffers mm-hmm. uh, to keep yeah. the humor going and so we we lose something is diluted or it's just it never really gels between the the, the two types uh and yet, it takes something that is could be really tawdry and makes it uh, palatable through the humor. So mm-hmm. the humor lets that horror get as nasty as it does. I was thinking, the entire time we're talking, I was thinking about this movie called Stillborn that came out a couple of years ago, which is pretty good. It's, it takes it all very seriously, but it's the whole idea of uh, they're having twins and one of the twins dies. And is the twin actually haunting and trying to get the other baby and mm-hmm. all of this stuff? And it was really, really creepy. But there is a moment where it's taking itself completely seriously and it delves into comedy unintentionally. Because there's a certain point where killer baby is fucking funny. So yeah. uh, there, there's something to be <laughs> yeah. said about starting. In, in the humor side of it. And then I love that you mentioned Elmer uh, from Brain Damage. That's like perfect. I never even thought of it until you said that. But that's Oh, yeah. Like, that's all I could think of when I saw the movie. I yeah. just, yeah, that's always great. Well, I just want to, you know, you say Killer Baby is always funny. It's amazing how little humor there is in It's Alive, though. Right. <laughs> <laughs> I still love that movie. It's so fucked up. Oh, yeah, of course. It's great. It's great. We're huge Larry Cohen fans. Rest in peace, Larry. Okay, moving on to our next list. Calling writer and film historian Richard Harlan Smith, an expert on horror movies, would be like calling the hair on Elsa Lancaster's Bride of Frankenstein different. It's just not good enough a word. But whatever the word for the Bride of Frankenstein's hair, Richard Harlan Smith would be the one to find it. Uh, I'm hoping one day that we get a nice, juicy collection of all his best works in book form. Uh, But in the meantime... Uh, you can seek them out in the pages of Video Watchdog, online at TCM's Lamented Movie Morlocks, or Smith's own uh, blog, Armagast on Film. Uh, or, if you haven't um, listened to his many audio commentaries on the dozens of films he's uh, done for Kino Lorber, Arrow Films, Oliver Signature, and others, 
they are top notch, more entertaining than the films themselves sometimes. Uh, he's just a man who knows what he's fucking talking about. And here's what he's talking about when I asked him what his favorite horror films of the decade were. He picked The Pact, Willow Creek, directed by Bobcat Goldwaite from 2013, Train to Busan, What We Do in the Shadows, directed by Jermaine Clement and Taiki Watiki in 2014, New Zealand, and Take Shelter, directed by Jeff Nichols from 2011. <laughs> and speaking of horror comedy, right? What We Do in the Shadows is another oh. one that really works amazingly well. Yeah, Incredibly well done, because it's so smart. It ob- obviously, they, they know genre mm-hmm. to make the jokes that they make. Yeah. And, and so uh, that, uh, you know, it's kind of like Spinal Tap uh, for very being very obvious, Spinal Tap for horror, but it's so much wittier in some ways. But yeah, so kind of like how Spinal Tap, they, somebody in that group needed to like music enough to at least know they didn't like metal to make the jokes <laughs> that they made. Yeah. yeah, Like you don't send the band to Japan unless you know that there's like a million live in Japan albums yeah. <laughs> that happen for all these marginal bands. Uh, what we do in the shadows, the thing that completely cemented it for me was the werewolves. Yeah. yeah. It, it was like... Not was werewolves. So, yeah. yeah. <laughs> when the starving shows up. So, so damn smart. And uh, just the the cleverness of the hierarchy and and taking that into like the real world concept was really, really fun for me. And I I haven't watched the show yet, but I hear that the show is so great because they have a psychic vampire on there. It's just like a a little while to get going, but like three episodes in, it's completely rolling, you know? Yeah. I have to give it a shot because I, I, I stayed away from what we do in the shadows for a year Yeah. because I was like, you know, uh, this is just going to be one of those things where everybody who's not a horror fan loves this fucking thing. Yeah. It's slamming horror. Right. Yeah. And like Prevenge, it has that, you know, kind of go- the gore effects that are in there, um, except people reacting to it the way you would expect they would in real life. Like when he right. goes gushing, he's, you know, trying to, get it up with a towel. He's, you know, he's completely overwhelmed by the carnage that he's caused. Yeah. You know, a lot of the comedy comes right from actual horror tropes that are in the movie. Also, yeah. interestingly, you know, on this list, there's another film from a comedy director. You know, yeah. They are both huge Bobcat Goldwaite fans. It's really interesting that he picked Willow Creek, which uh, I agree with him. And his note there, he, he sort of mentions that it's owes 95% of it to Blair Witch. And I find it as being like a better version of Blair Witch. Blair Witch worked 0% on me. I find no part of Blair Witch, the original, interesting or scary. And Willow Creek, I really enjoyed uh, in some way. I still don't, you know, it wouldn't be on my top five list, but it's, it's fascinating to see a comedy director take on the Blair Witch aesthetic very directly and make a not funny movie about Bigfoot. And Bobcat Coldweight is right. a real Bigfoot believer in real life. He really believes it oh, exists. I and he's using it as like, he's genuinely interested in exploring uh, that idea that maybe you could go out in the woods and see Bigfoot. And kind of, uh, I think the main character is like he is, is somebody who's like a half-hearted true believer. Like he is a true believer, but he's also like, you know, hey, what's he going to do? You know, join, join MUFON. Like, he's not going to do that, you know? And uh, so I think it has an interesting... It's another one that's like, oh, that's interesting that that's on somebody's list. I'm excited it's getting mentioned as a worthwhile horror film. Yeah, I know? did I did uh, say to Richard, wow, I'm surprised that's on there. That's when he gave me this comment. The second half of the comment says he says it's packed a powerful 
by Matt Punch. And I 100% agree. I think the ending yeah. is really unsafe. Right. I, I think that the end is really, really good in that movie. I'm a huge, I, I remember seeing Goldthwait when he was doing stand-up in the 80s. Whoa, when, I, yeah. I thought he was fucking tremendous. I don't know what happened. He just kind of rolled into a weirdness, uh, not an obscurity, but he just kind of was, I don't know if he was marginalized or what, but his comedy went from this apex and then all of a sudden yeah. everybody went to sam kinnison for, for he made a lot of enemies yeah, say even today enemies, yeah. if there's powerful people from 80s comedy who hate him to this day wow you know? so but his yeah. second act though as a film director has been astonishing yeah yeah i, I i'm i'm stunned uh oh my goodness uh Father of the Year, was that what? what yeah, was? World's, World's Greatest, Greatest Dad. Dad. World's Greatest Dad, thank you. God that Bless America. Yeah, God Bless America is just insane. Why did they change that one too? No, it's so, too, that's what they call it, yeah. Yeah, uh, those are absolutely insane. They changed to yeah. Sleeping Dog's Life. Yeah, they're absolutely insane films, yeah. and they're great. I mean, he used to, back in the days of his comedy, he used to do short films, yeah. and they were all dark as shit. And yeah. it's interesting to see him mm-hmm. branch out because Call Me Lucky is also phenomenal. Oh, man, the documentary he yeah. made uh, is really one of the best films of that year. Same year as what we do in The Shadows. And so it's fascinating to see Do Willow Creek, which is a very straight-faced, you know, if this was some hard director's first film, you'd be like, wow, that person is a really, like, serious student of the reality genre of horror. Like, this is... You know, you would not have any guess that the background was stand-up comedy if you didn't. Yeah, right. Yeah, I, I, I'm okay with the movie. It's not yeah. really high up in my stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I, but I part ways on the Blair Witch. I think that when I saw it in the theaters, when it came out, I was like, no, this is this was a change that was strong. Every screening at the Angelic, it was sold out for like a week. I went and saw it on like Tuesday on a two o'clock and I wanted my fucking money back. I've wow. never been so disappointed by a horror <laughs> movie in my life. It's I, I, the most surprising. I was also in film school at the time and that movie is like a student film of like put actors in front of a camera who don't have anything to say and watch them flail. It was like watching 90% of student films of yeah. just like, and then in the post put like some spooky music on it and see if you can save it. It was yeah. just such like, well, the most surprising bullshit, if you ask me, Harvey. <laughs> <laughs> the most surprising pick for me, uh, since I always associate uh, Richard Harlan Smith with, you know, the Universal Monster movies, B Monster movies, mm. things like that, older movies, uh, and he seems like a very stringent, you know, this is horror kind of guy. From what I know of him, uh, Take Shelter, I think, is a movie Love that it. a lot of people would say. Is it horror? Is it not horror? You know, there would be like a, a, a conversation. No, truly a horror film, as far as I'm concerned. Yeah, okay. I, I, I've done a whole show on, on that, just because yeah. I, I did a show about people who are being, it was called Fear of God. And it was yeah. the idea of just having the voice of God suddenly start talking to you in whatever way that would be, in dreams or whatever. Yeah. And I was, I thought this movie was so great because they set up that his mom's schizophrenic. Uh, yeah. They set up that he is quietly an angry man, and then yeah. all this stuff starts to happen. And some of the visual imagery 
for the nightmares that he's having yeah. are truly visceral and powerful. I think I mentioned uh, It Follows had that hazy kind yeah. of dreamlike smoke in the, their dream sequences. And in uh, Take Shelter, the rain, constant rain in the background and the, just the sound quality of how the rain was mm-hmm. and everything being very dark. It's something that James Wan did very well as well in The Conjuring, where rooms take on a temperature that is disturbing because yeah. of how they're lit. Absolutely. Carpenter and, does that all the yes. time, too. That's one of Carpenter's specialty is just light this to make it scary just from the lighting. And the yeah, lighting. And, and Nichols does that in a couple scenes in Take Shelter where he's having these nightmares of people like trying to get in the house. Yeah. They're banging on the doors. Or when everything is levitating, of course, that's a big part. Yeah. But I think before that even happens, he's just like, hey, hey, trying to yeah. yell at people outside well, the also, house. I think that, you know, one of the very first horror stories, if not the first, is the story of Abraham and Isaac, which is a truly terrifying story, you know, that God will tell you to go and sacrifice your firstborn son. That is, if you look at it from the outside, there's a dad who takes his kid up to the mountain to stab him to death, and that's a truly horrifying story, and that's obviously, you know, Kierkegaard's fear and trembling is all about the God that asks you to do that kind of shit. And for this movie to repeat that of the, the father who's going to do horrible shit to their family because they believe it's God will is yeah. one of the oldest, if not the oldest horror story. Yeah. And Shannon is just magnificent in it because I, and I love the storyline because it's not like he goes, Oh, well, I'm a deeply religious person and God's yeah. talking to me. And he, he is hiding it the whole time because he thinks he's going crazy like his exactly. mom. And that is so powerful. So when he loses it at that crab feed or whatever that they're at, and he just starts going Pentecostal on everybody, it is truly disturbing, unsettling. And it reminded me of my past, which was, <laughs> I was brought up in a fundamental Going crazy at crab. Religion. Yep, that was it. We, th- we used to throw crabs at each other. <laughs> Jebediah! That's hence his nickname. Crabby S.A. Bradley. Yes, right. Crabby S.A. Bradley. Mr. Butter. Well, he's, he was a perfect, well, he was a perfectly cast. Mr. Butter, that's your nickname, John. He's perfectly cast uh, considering uh, how great he was in William Friedkin's Bug, which was... You know, oh, my God. That was... There's one that I would put in, in this yeah. list if I had another list to do. No, that it was, was, a, it was a previous decade, a, but yeah, yeah. It's like 2008, 2008. Yeah, it's like right before the... Yeah, turn of the yeah. it was tremendous. Uh, so... Yeah. Yeah, especially... I mean, oh God, I could go on about Freakin. In fact, I should go on about Freakin on the <laughs> podcast because he's always been we'll this love We'll have you back on thing. to talk about The Guardian. Yes, yes, thank you. Uh, that and, Six and hours then- just on The Guardian. <laughs> and then the father dickhead's amazing exorcism or whatever the hell it was called. <laughs> that documentary that oh was so God. horrible. Such oh. an embarrassment. A terrible embarrassment yeah. considering i mean it was like and that's a thing with Friedkin, and i'll get off of him very quickly because we got to keep going but yeah. he's he is such a hot and cold guy on talent he yeah. just he goes amazingly at these great lengths of like wow he is at the top of this he form and then he believes in himself at all times which is yeah. a blessing and a curse crime of the century you, or deal of the century if holy you shit. give him something terrible he thinks he's going to make a great movie out of it and i met him twice we did two q a's with him when i worked at the theater and it was fascinating to meet him in person both times a because he's short and every other director in the world is tall. Every director is tall and comes from money to begin with. Guys you think are short, Steven Soderbergh, tall. You know, Oliver Stone, tall. 
all of them, but William Friedkin was short and he was such an interesting guy because he's always on and he's effortlessly charming. Just like he works the shit out of the room. You think you made a personal connection with him when you shook his hand, you know? Huh. Um, and it just, just a crazy, exactly what you want. He took out his wallet at one point and because he was like adjusting his pants, I was getting ready to take him into the theater. And he had a huge stack of bills. And he saw me looking at it. He goes, that's right. Those are hundreds. And puts it back in his pocket. <laughs> it is, you know, it must have been two inches thick. of just Wow. But he said it like a joke, like, what do you expect, kid? You know, kind of thing. And it was exactly what you'd want. Hurricane bills, kid. Hurricane bills. <laughs> 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 All right. So we got uh, another list from cinematic demonologist Ian Lawful. Uh, contributor to sites like Pinland Empire and the Pink Smoke. You may have heard of him. Yeah. Uh, Long time writer. Yeah. A patriot of ours. Uh, someone who I consider an expert, especially in British horror uh, cinema. Uh, and you want to, you, if you want to know his top 100 horror films of all time, check out his blog, willowybeing.blogspot.com. Uh, he is list. He says he wanted to stress that his first choice was his number one by far, his very favorite horror film of the decade. But he says, I'm quite strict when it comes to what can be classified as horror. There are certain films that go into the horror territory. I was tempted to mention like Bone Tomahawk, but I decided to omit um, due to categorization issues. So, so wow. Ian's, we got a purist. Ian's number one choice is Creepy, Kiyoshi Kurosawa from 2016. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, my boy picked Kotoko, which we've already discussed. Uh, the Love Witch by Anna Biller. That's another popular favorite one. Mm-hmm. That's that's cool to see turning. Yeah, Over Your Dead Body by Takashi Miike from 2014, and Twixt by Francis Ford Coppola, 2011. And I got to say, if there was one film I did not expect to pop up on anybody's list, yeah, that would be it. Visually, kind of cool. I, I mean, there's some solid. You know, that was supposed to be like a live performance movie where Coppola sits there and edits it live based on the audience's reaction in that the DJ, who I don't even know if they ended up using his score, but which was a friend of ours, Dan Deacon, Mm -hmm. was supposed to be performing live music and while the film was being edited live based on audience reaction to it. And I have no idea if it was ever shown that way. Do you? Uh, No, no, I'd never heard of it being shown. It makes it when you see it, it's like, oh, this could have been something, you know? (laughs) Yeah. Not what it is. Yeah, it's funny just to see Mill Valley, you know, it's like that movie. I, I live around there, so it's like seeing the, the, him basically go out in his backyard to make the movie and everything is kind of charming in a weird way. I, I mean, there, it's a strange, strange choice. But you'd mentioned Creepy uh, when we were talking yes. about Cold Fish. Uh, that's a good comparison. I was going to wait until we got to Ian's list to, to discuss it further, but um, it's interesting when you can, when you compare the two directors, um, uh, Sono and Kurosawa. Uh, Sono obviously is going to be a lot more sensationalistic with it. Flamboyant. A more, yeah, flamboyant. Yeah. He's really going to go over the top. Yeah. Um, but Kurosawa is someone who seems genuinely interested in human behavior yeah. and people's response to that behavior. Yeah. Um, and I think that's the, t- the thing that differentiates the two films. Uh, Coldfish being one where a guy is just sucked into this life of depravity and then Creepy being one where almost to the last five minutes of the film, there's this incredible ambiguity in terms of like, yeah. wait, is this guy really killing people? Is he evil? Right. What do we think about this? What do the characters think about this? And we can't believe these characters are getting sucked in for reasons completely unexplained. Chris did a great job talking about how in Coldfish, the guy is this loser who can't even 
you know, step up to be like this, you know, right. this horrible person. Uh, and in this one, I think a real horror for Kurosawa is the idea that everyone has horribleness in them somewhere yeah. and that the real horror in his films comes from like pulling that out. Yeah. He's also like a commandingly low energy filmmaker. Sure. I think very few filmmakers get as much. Uh, it's, a, it's almost, a, it's a style that's more common in the art house, but to just rely on stillness and quiet, mm-hmm. he gets so much out of his movies uh, by having them be uh, like almost a morass. You know, he's just mm-hmm. such a low energy filmmaker in a way that's really impressive. In some ways, I think it's much harder to pull off than being flashy. Oh, like ab- 100%. Sony. Yeah. Although, ab- when it, although when Sono does it, it's great. So oh, sure, 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 sure. Right. right. Well, I, it is two different, completely different styles, and I think each has their own challenges. I mean, keeping the energy of Sono up yeah. and having yeah. actors somehow understand what they're supposed to be motivated and to. And not have it become one note or... Yeah, bearing. yeah. right. And, and then having a switch where, uh, where you're mocking. Uh, basically, at the beginning of the movie, it feels like a satire, and we're talking cold fish, and then it uh, ends up being like almost a tragic character study. Uh, what I think is interesting about Creepy uh, is... Um, and it was really high up on on my list, but I think where cold fish weirdly enough as as unbelievable as cold fish can be, it has less of a step that you have to take that creepy has so there 's a moment in creepy when people start changing you know yeah. okay i 'm going to just start taking drugs that I was like boy there 's the leap there 's the leap i mean i 'm loving this character study of this guy who 's unlikable he, he the killer if you want to call it, the the main character the creepy fucker yeah. uh, if you 're looking at him in the film, I think he 's akin to weirdly enough a TV movie yeah. dean koontz 's intensity huh. where there is this killer who is fastidious That's Stephen Weber right no it 's um Oh my God, uh, McGinley, John McGinley. Oh, okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. And he is so great in that movie because he's like this uber nerd who has uh, he has problems dealing with people, and yeah. that's what I see with this killer uh, or the, the creepy guy. When you find out when the daughter goes, "This is not my father," you're like, "What? This is so good," and you start getting drawn in. But he's, it's almost like you would normally see in a film that someone who's going to be a Mistopheles character is going to make everybody change and do the dance that he wants them to do. They would be terribly sexually exciting or appealing or charismatic. And this guy is not. This guy is terribly rude from the very beginning. And then he has to come (laughs) back and apologize for being rude. And then he's talking about the wife that we don't see and all this stuff. And he's like a really bad neighbor or not a bad neighbor, (laughs) but an annoying neighbor that you would somehow, how have jokes about and yeah. not hate as much as maybe another neighbor because he's so idiosyncratic. And so I thought it was really interesting and in how far it goes. I loved how- It reminded it, me of uh, the descriptions of Jeffrey Dahmer, who was like voted class clown and stuff. And, right, like, there right. There was something wrong with him, but he wasn't like, he seems evil. He just seemed like creepy, you know? Right. Where it seems right, like, where you almost feel bad to yeah, like have uh, these thoughts about yeah, this guy's yeah. a loser and he sort of irritates me, but he's also kind of good looking and he can be charming. And then he's talking about like his organ filled altar that he yeah, 
you know? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And in this movie in Creepy, the social awkwardness is so great. And I love how it talks about this. I mean, if I remember correctly, and it's been a while since I've watched Creepy, we have someone who should know better who's the, the husband, right? I mean, he, he yeah, was a, a hostage negotiator, right? Yeah. yeah. Profiler. Yeah. yeah. So he's a profiler. He should know. And I love how this whole thing of like architecture and everything is part of the, the mystery that's going on inside of, the, of this little neighborhood. So I love that we're set up to go, oh, well, he's going to notice right off this guy. Yeah. In other words, it makes you feel absolutely defenseless that there could be a psycho right next to you and you're, not, you're going to miss all of the, uh, the, uh, the guideposts that are going to tell you that this guy's crazy. And I love how in this movie it just talks about this cult mentality. We want things to be normal. We want things to work out. And in a way, what happens in Creepy is everybody is trying to find the new normal with this fucker. Yes. Yes, that's and, exactly it. Yeah. So the new normal gets everybody into this The craziness. new normal turns everyone into a freaking psycho. Yeah. Yeah. So <laughs> it's fun. Water seeks its own level. Yes. And that's this guy's trap. <laughs> and so I thought it was, it's brilliant. It's brilliant. And the way that it, it goes so far, you know, you're like going, well, maybe this is going to be like some weird comedy of manners. Maybe. Then yeah. when you start seeing the basement kind of thing, and then, <laughs> then there's a road trip and you're like, what? <laughs> so, yeah, it's it's really interesting, and I love what you said, Chris, about it being very low energy. In in other words, not very showy. Yeah. So it has almost like this drawing in nightmare of what the. Yeah. How, it has more impact when you see the the little den, and when you yeah. see that he's going to have everybody go on a road trip. It's like, Jesus Christ! You know, this is <laughs> absolutely crazy. This is not Act One. Where are we? You know? yeah. So, so yeah, just talking about it made me remember how much I love that movie. So I'm glad it was on the list. Well, while we're on the topic of Kiyoshi Kurosawa, Chris, what is your third pick? Yes. Um, my third pick is another Kiyoshi Kurosawa film. This is kind of a cheat, I guess. It's a film called Penance uh, from 2012, which was a five-part miniseries when it was released in Japan, but it was released here in the United States as a 270-minute uh, feature length cut of it wow. and it's a essentially it's a story about there's a uh, family that moves to a new small town and the daughter who's a child is out playing in the playground with four other girls and a strange man comes up and asks uh, the little one of the little girls the one who's just moved to the town to leave the playground with them and the four other girls don't do anything to stop it and then they also can't provide the police with a meaningful description of the man right and so it's this movie about the mother of the daughter who's disappeared um hating these four girls and calling for them to once they're grown adults to sort of atone for that sin and but what it really is well they is, find her murdered also yes they find the murdered yeah daughter. yeah the daughter gets murdered in, in case you didn't no, leaving with a creepy stranger in Japan <laughs> adds up to murder. Well, she just doesn't disappear. Yeah, yeah. Yes, true, true. Very good and an important part. Um, and But what it really is, is like an anthology film, like Tales from the Crypt or Tales from the Dark Side or something, where each episode is sort of its own individually contained 
morality play about each one of these four women. Uh, in the first episode, it can be quite Baroque and stylized, where it's about a woman who's sort of living as a living doll, being dressed up like as a porcelain doll and treated as a, as a wife in that way. And other sections, I mean, we're talking about, you know, pregnancy horror films. It has one of the great horrible torturings of a pregnant woman that's ever been put on film. Not physical torturing, like psychological torturing. Mm. And then it pulls together and, it, and it, the final episode is sort of bringing the, the mystery to a close and drawing everything together. And I think that's the most powerful, uh, most Kurosawa, uh, Kiyoshi Kurosawa-esque uh, sequence in the film, that final episode that really is, um, you know, it's just, it's a real, it's a real, thuddingly hard thing with a lot of upsetting reversals and things you can't predict. But this is like a massive monumental thing. Um, and John and I watched it at the Toronto Film Festival. We start, saw it and watched it stop to start. And it took a couple of years for it to get distribution in the U.S. John and I actually considered forming a distribution company specifically to distribute it. That's how <laughs> much we wanted it to come wow. out. Um, and it's really, uh, it, it's really impressive. You know, it's funny, it's, it was made for TV. And I think Kurosawa's style, because he is uh, low energy, he's a very uh, uh, modest, not extravagant filmmaker. He loses very little in the transition to television. He's somebody who knows how to milk everything he can out of a single frame and a single movement and a single noise. You know, you think about... Um, is it in Cure where the zombie comes out of the darkness and like stumbles? What one is that in? It's not in Cure. Pulse? Pulse. Yes, it's in Pulse. Uh, where she comes out of the darkness and she just sort of stumbles a little bit. And that stumble is so unbelievably scary. It makes the scene scary that this like weird jerking movement that you're like mm. afraid of and then you interpret it as an actual human behavior and then you're like but this is not a human thing and that's just and it's just a wide shot a still frame almost mm. total darkness a person stepping forward and like one of the great shocks you know in in, in horror cinema and um he's constantly doing that so this is a film that you never feel like you're watching made something for tv that's restricted by its budget you feel like you're watching a typical kurosawa film because it his style translates so readily to television that he doesn't need to sacrifice anything to sort of um scale down because he's a naturally modest filmmaker or concentrated i sort of i'm struggling for the right word to describe him uh, reserved minimalist minimalist, mm -hmm. might minimalist be right makes sense. you know he belongs to a tradition that i associate with like european art cinema of just you know like brisson or something like that he's almost the brisson of horror i think would be a very yeah. good comparison <laughs> absolutely i love this movie and uh this is one that like i always feel like championing like if you like horror movies go seek this out uh and it's and it's incredibly varied too like in its tone some are funny some are gothic some are very baroque some are very straight ahead some are weird some are straight ahead pulse pounding thriller it sort of has everything you could want in a horror movie and it's 270 minutes long so goddamn well better right it does sort of go across the spectrum as far as different flavors in this very uh, very specific kurosawa soup yeah if anyone feels cynical about the fact that it was made for tv i would say to give you an idea this is kurosawa's decalogue i would say yes it's just as cinematic it's as, his berlin as alexander Plus. yes <laughs> okay 
I think interesting. That's I, I I've not seen this film. So how hard is it to find? Is it? It's uh, out on DVD now. Yeah, you can buy it. Okay, yeah, you can mm-hmm. get it now. And it's that's the kind true. of thing too, where like it also, you know, if you break it up into individual episodes, I'm sure it doesn't hurt it that much too. You know, I don't know that it needs to be an endurance test. I think it is like Decalogue, where if you watch one episode a night, you're fine. You don't need to watch all ten hours in a row. You know, and I think that's you know, uh, I, thematically, it has a lot of the things he's interested in about like sort of the societal creation of guilt and uh, the societal roots of like fury, guilt, uh, uh, self-judgment, you know, remorse, self-judgment, when people want you to declare yourself guilty, that sort of societal pressure to declare yourself guilty of things and feeling that and how it warps your Mm -hmm. insides and sort of that web of how justice webs itself out in a community and that finding the killer is behind the point beside the point in some ways, you know, that this is really about her relationship to her daughter and her daughter's pseudo friends that she doesn't know very well, that didn't do the right thing. Right. And who can expect a bunch of 10 year old girls to do the right thing in that circumstance. And you think about how terrifying that is in your own life that like, you know, little kids when approached and confronted by evil, what can they do in the face of it? You know, mm-hmm. and it's not like a menacing helplessness. It's a very simple uh, scenario, you know, and the helplessness is totally profound, but also understanding the mother's rage of how can you let this happen? You had the one moment in your life to make a moral decision, to be a moral person, and you blew it, you know? So now that you're grown up, all these moral failures of your childhood, you just get to wash them away because you decided you're an adult now. And what does it mean to be moral in the context of an adult who every child is sort of starts out fundamentally amoral and then is a little immoral and then becomes hopefully a good person. You learn to suppress the id. Yeah, trying to flush away your past, you know, and all of the failures that we all make as persons and trying to become good as people and trying to become good human beings. What does it mean to try and move on from them? And what do you owe anybody in a tragedy? What do you owe somebody who's befallen a tragedy? Mm. And that sort of malignancy, that cultural societal malignancy in a community of the person who's befallen the tragedy, you know, who's had tragedy befallen them. You know, it's sort of like the, the crazy old lady who lives on the edge of town, you know, maybe she has good reasons to be crazy, but at a certain point, maybe your town needs to get rid of this person. You know, maybe this thing, this is a destructive force. Maybe the malignancy of trauma has has widened its circle and spread to other places. And there's nothing you can do about it, which is a deeply terrifying thought, obviously, that the mother is not a righteous person. Mm-hmm. That's oh, yeah. A, yeah. That sounds really intriguing. So it's I've got phenomenal. to see this. It's absolutely phenomenal. And I, I love too what you were saying just about the, that, that, that need to get back to the new normalcy, you know, to, yeah. to adapt to, you know, what everyone else is supposedly, what the moral ambiguities in Kurosawa films is really where his horror comes from. Because really, if you describe the plots of his movies, more of them sound like straight up crime films than horror movies. Um, But really what lingers is the question, where does this darkness come from? What do I do with it? You know, his characters struggle with the, you can't beat them, join them attitude. Yeah. And I think to answer your question, they're dealing a lot with it too, about the inevitability and irresistibility of darkness Mm -hmm. in our life. Yeah. That there's sort of that, that the awfulness of his movies 
befalls people. And it befalls people in a way that they really don't have a choice, but you made to feel a, a sense of compunction in the matter that maybe you should have resisted something that was forced on you. Maybe you should have had a choice, but you actually don't. You know, even thinking yeah. about like the model and daguerreotype of like mm -hmm. this person who's literally asleep while the crime is going on around her. She's like a narcoleptic who falls asleep while <laughs> modeling. And, um, and, and it's literally, you know, you're literally not even your conscious mind as like this darkness is growing around you. Yeah, absolutely. It's not the scary guy jumping out at you. It's your right. own potential wickedness threatening to release itself. And your helplessness yeah. and that yeah. wickedness. Mm -hmm. Well, I and think that's... not even a battle. It just seeps out into the world. Yeah. Yeah. And that, that's where I see the, the need for when we talk about horror, the definition being, you know, fear, dread, shock, and surprise that you can feel, but also the why. Why do you want me to go home feeling that way? You know, what, what is the last emotion you want me to feel? And that's why, like, uh, To Live or Die in L.A., I think, is a horror film. Ooh, that yeah. ends. Now that ends with uh, with the devil winning, basically, yeah. <laughs> and you leave with a horrible feeling of dread. And, yeah. and so uh, uh, this sounds like, uh, and that's what I love. I love that playing with genre, and uh, this yeah. sounds and like uh, uh, Penance more, certainly does that. Yeah, and one mm -hmm. more thing I want to say about him is that he's he's a moralist for sure, but he's also a humanist which is an incredibly rare combination, both in people and in artists, for somebody to have an incredible moral sense, but also a bottomless sympathy for the human condition and for people on their own level. You know, it reminds me of, again, like Brisson is a good comparison. Jean Renoir is a good comparison for mm. his moral constellation. Wow. You know, these people who sort of have an incredibly strong sense of right and wrong, but are incredibly sympathetic to the people involved in these stories that these are filmmakers who almost make villainless movies you know and he mm -hmm. belongs to that tradition of mm -hmm. who are who who could you identify as a villain in rules of the game or grand illusion mm -hmm. right um, right who could you identify as a villain in you know crime of manjo lang or fun xian you know it's very hard to think of the bad people in those movies, despite them being incredibly moralistic films. I think, I think Larry Jaunt is a great comparison. Larry the, Jaunt, the, great comparison. The main character in that. Or um, Very um, Curacao. Lancelot du Lac, mm -hmm. I think is a great comparison. Just the oh. amount of blood and stuff in it and the disembodiedness of mm -hmm. it uh, reminds me of it. But also the sympathy, you know? Where of course. It's the, where it's a very... Uh, you know, that film is all about societal structures and like the structuring of mores and rules and uh, just like the inevitable things you have to do to go to battle, you know, like mm -hmm. nobody in that movie seems to be doing anything of their own volition. Everyone is like going through motions that they feel completely impossible to resist. And same thing with L'Argent also, where there's a sort of inevitability to all of the crime in that film. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's a great comparison. I mean, Kurosawa, I, I usually think of him as just personally, probably the most consistently interesting and sophisticated filmmaker working out of Japan. I mean, he really is. You're reading the book, um, I guess it's hard to say hard to compare them. Yeah. It's hard to compare them. They're, they're on different levels, different yeah. levels of genius. They're both amazing. Yeah. Um, but even Kurosawa's lesser works 
are really interesting. Yeah. yeah. His favorite movie, my favorite movie of his is Bright Future, which I don't mm-hmm. think I would tell anybody is his best movie. Mm. You know Same with I mean? me. I'd say Charisma, but yeah. which is my favorite, but I don't know if I would say it was his best. Yeah. yeah. And he's very much that type of filmmaker. Those filmmakers are really like special, aren't they? Mm. Where you're like your favorite, you don't think <laughs> is their best. Yeah, absolutely. You mm. need to write something about that. <laughs> this so, is the kind of horror conversation I like. <laughs> <laughs> so Penance is great. Uh, go look at it. I, I feel like Amazon Prime once had it, maybe lost it. I There's don't know. A beautiful DVD with like a fold out case. Yeah, with, like yeah, that, that uh, cover image of her with like her uh, mascara makeup. streaming. Yeah. Mm-hmm. She looks so Heather Buckley did it. Uh, maybe but the, that lead actress the one who plays the mother is phenomenal we were talking about starry eyes i think everyone's great yeah. you know this is she's somebody like that's an oscar worthy performance you know mm-hmm. like she really is unforgettably good at it and called on to do quite a bit elric kane provides our next list mr kane is a film creator teacher and co-producer writer and director of films such as murmurs kissy kissy and tender uh, he is one of the very well-known podcasters on Blumhouse Pro- Productions Podcast Network's flagship program, Shockwaves, co-hosted by Rebecca McKendry, Rob Galuzzo, and Ryan Turek. Uh, we know him, of course, as the co-host of Pure Cinema Podcast. Which the Pink Smoke hosted for their third season. Yes, and Ooh. now is the official podcast of the New Beverly Cinema. Um, so Mr. Kane is a very busy gentleman. I, I generally don't know when he and his, um, and Mr. Brian Sauer get to sleep. But anyway, his list, he wants to preface by saying it was so hard to pick, but all made all these films made a major impression on my first theatrical viewing. He picks The Black Coat's Daughter, It Follows, Kill List, The Autopsy of Jane Doe, Evil Dead, the remake by uh, Fede Alvarez, and A Dark Song. So he snuck in a sixth one, but I think it's safe to say from this list, Mr. Kane is on our wavelength, our shock wavelength. Well, I'm, I'm really happy to see, I mean, obviously I like many of the, the picks that are on here, but I'm really happy to see Evil Dead on here yeah. uh, because I thought that it was a great remake. Just, just for, there's emotion in that film that the original didn't have, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And there, there was a good, a good way of working a rather standard horror story idea that Raimi had uh, and turning it into something a little bit more provocative. Just the idea of having, I mean, you may not want to go out into the deep woods for somebody to get off <laughs> drugs, <laughs> but at the same point, it's a very good idea. I mean, I remember, I think it was a movie called The Green Man, with Albert Finney back in the 80s where he was an alcoholic going through DT seizures and he was seeing ghosts and you're not sure is he seeing ghosts or not that uh, are coming from uh, his detoxing and so there's a certain level of that in in, uh, the Evil Dead remake but it's also just even if it had just been like a straight up look at the Evil Dead uh, it's a super strong directed uh horror film and the the production value is really really good in it and yeah. it's one of those things where i sit there and uh, my my 
big thing is I would take a remake any day over a sequel because a sequel just inevitably is killing what you love. Sooner or later, especially for a horror movie, you're always going to ask for more. And so often the horror is not knowing. But the second movies, I always look at like Halloween 2. Oh, look, they're actually related. You know, it's like, <laughs> you take all this sh- yeah. stuff that was so great and you and remove it. Sequels are great for actors and I guess for the writer to a certain degree. But I think that the remake is an opportunity to do something really significantly interesting and sometimes very self-aware. Like I yeah. really liked uh, The Town That Set Dreaded Sundown. The, yeah. the remake of that because that was so meta and it was it still was able to be violent and disturbing but it updated things and it also lived in a universe that knew about the first film yeah. and so what it did is it talked more about the town which I thought was very interesting. The idea of the duality of Texarkana, half Texas, half Arkansas. Everybody's trying to solve this crime. And so I really appreciate, I mean, considering what the first movie was, this yeah. was such a huge departure. Yeah. And uh, I, I love when... when and God, an improvement. You know, I think there's a lot yeah. of remakes like John Carpenter's The Thing or The Town yes. at Sundown that the, the fly. yeah, do not hold up super well. The original Town That Trend at Sundown is very dry. That yeah. is a dry cracker with some really rough stretches in it, you know? Yeah. So the remake gets the opportunity to improve it, like really genuinely improve it. And it's impossible not to think the same thing when watching like Carpenter's The Thing. I don't yeah. think Fetty Alvarez's film necessarily improves on the first two Evil Dead movies. Well, I feel like he kind of but... almost pulled one off on the, uh, the studio because uh, it really is as disconnected from the original yeah. trilogy right. as could be. I mean, and we didn't say this when we were talking about Don't Breathe, but uh, Jane Levy's performance too is really fantastic. Mm, uh, yeah. She's excellent in both of those films. Yeah. Um, she's, so, also, she's also in, she's in those two good movies. She's in the, one of the great teen Halloween movies of the past few years, Fun Size, which Fun is Size. not a Halloween, which is not a horror movie, but she's phenomenal in like a teen comedy set on Halloween, which is one of my favorites. That's like, like the sidekick friend in that movie. Yeah. yeah. Um, but yeah, she's great. Um, um, and uh, and it's it's a lot of Alvarez in there. It's the the right. Raimi world, the Raimi domain. But yes. it's clearly Alvarez wanting to do his own thing. Yeah. And as you were saying, I think you know with remakes, you know, being able to do something really remodel the the structure, taking the basic yeah. bones of it, but then yeah. stuffing your own intestines in there is really what it gets. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah the, I, the body I, snatchers, you know, is what I think. Oh God, yeah, one of the best. Sequels versus remakes. The obvious thing is a sequel is an attempt to continue a story that is frequently completely logically ended. You right. know, whereas a remake is taking that self-contained idea and doing something else with it. You know, I yeah, think that it's. It's a slam dunk in that way when you don't have to say, okay, what's the story now for Halloween 2? I guess she, right. That's the example he was just yet yeah. saying. So, um, yeah, I think uh, there, there's something to uh, remakes allow for almost like a pardon of films that were destined to a uh, the, the dungeon of a time period that they were made. Yeah. Like even uh, like the Soska sisters just redid Rabbit. Yeah. And Rabbit's good but it's not shivers <laughs> shivers yeah. is no, the one that i, I go rabid is the the one that you're like oh you're not fucking with the classic there <laughs> right yeah you you have a, a really good skeletal 
Yeah. Yeah. Right. You don't you've got here and go like, how could somebody else do that? Right. Or dead how ringers. Could they improve it. Yeah. Yeah. You watch it and you go, oh, that's real good, but it needs improvement. You know? Yeah. But Rabbit has this uh, really, you know, uh, the story is somewhat similar to Shivers, mm-hmm. and then goes down this interesting way. What the Soskas do with Rabbit, and I, I'll be interested to see what people think of it yeah. when it gets released, is that it's part. Cronenberg and part like uh, uh, Chuck Palahniuk, you know. Uh, so it's like this weird. Uh, I don't know if you know the his book uh, is it Invisible Monsters? I think it's Invisible Monsters. No, I so, only know the big ones. <laughs> yeah, but he has the, there's like this weird mix, and I mean they go right at it from the first frame. That you yeah. hear somebody going, "Why do we remake things?" And it's yeah. set in the fashion industry, yeah. so uh, I think they go right at beauty well, that's myth. An interesting. Move yeah. Right there. Yeah. It's they they take it out of. Uh, you know, I I think it tells you everything that you need to know about how serious they are with this film, on the wound that happens to Rose. Right. In yeah. in it's a motorcycle accident in Cronenberg's, and she has a dirty armpit, a nasty sexual yeah. armpit. Uh, but in this movie, her lower jaw is gone. So we're going right to the beauty. This is a woman in the fashion industry that loses her job. And and it's just like from there on, I I think it's a very dark film. And I think the first two thirds of it are Cronenbergian. And they don't just give nods to that film. They give nods to many Cronenberg films, Cronenberg ideas. Yeah. If you're a real Cronenberg geek, you'll be giggling a lot. Through you'll the movie. see all the fast company references, right? Yes, exactly. There is one, <laughs> strangely <laughs> enough. Is somebody but, driving a Rin Max? <laughs> <laughs> but the, uh, the, the thing that's interesting is the third act is something very personal. And you can just mm-hmm. feel it. You can feel this thud and it gets really dark really fast and so it'll be interesting to see what people have to say i think it's uh one of the better remakes i've seen and i think it's back to form on a personal filmmaking level that the saskas had with american mary they've done other films of course but when it comes down to that personal thing that i think was really the cohesive glue the one that really struck a chord with people too yeah and so I think that Rabid has the opportunity of doing that. Awesome. Cool. I'm really excited to see it. Um, so Mr. Kane's co-host of the Pure Cinema podcast is Mr. Brian Sauer delivering our next list. Uh, champion of the underseen, underappreciated. He's the man behind Rupert Republican Speaks, with, which if you're a true cinephile, I don't even need to explain to you what that is. But uh, if you don't know, then get into, get into movies and go see go check out Rupert Pupkin Speaks online. Uh, he also is the host of the Just the Discs podcast through Rupert Pupkin. Uh, we love Brian. He's great. And this is his list. John Dies at the End by Don Coscarelli. Mm-hmm. Of the year 2012, Beyond the Black Rainbow, Panos Cosmatos from 2010. The Guest, Adam Wingard, 2014. Crimson Peak, Yumbo del Toro, 2015. And Backcountry, directed by... Adam McDonald from 2014, a Canadian film. I've yeah. got to say, I am shocked on these lists how little Del Toro those been. I yes. Shape of Water won Best Picture. Somebody would go to bat for it as a yeah. horror film. You know, Crimson mm. Peak, I thought, would be all over people's lists. How many is mm. it on? It's only like two, two, I think. Yeah. yeah. You know, that's one that, that I just really think of. He's so synonymous with horror these days. He's sort of like the new 
godhead, you know, like well, he, uh, he's, he's sort yeah. of the... Well, Scott Bradley's Old Man Paranoia's Come True, have the Oscars uh, successfully moved Shape of Water away from the horror <laughs> genre? Yeah. Oh, I think they tried very hard. In fact, I still have, I have people who watch or listen to my show. And yeah. uh, I, I had my one man show that I did in, in uh, Manhattan uh, this summer. And one of the guys that has been on my show and he does his own thing and yeah. he's put out his own book and everything. He watched the show, came up and shook my hand. He said, I completely disagree with you on Shape of Water. That is not a horror movie. And he walked yeah. away. <laughs> and it's like part I mean, of my main thesis. Yeah. <laughs> I think it's, those disagreements are always fair, you know, but it feels yeah. weird to me to, you know, one like that that's so evidently so steeped in horror. Oh, yeah. And and monster. Yeah, and it's all about monsters, many different yeah. types of monsters. And, uh, you know, when people go, oh, it's not a horror movie, it's a monster movie, I always say, well, that's like saying you're a resident of Kansas, but not a resident of the United States. Yeah. I mean, give me a break. It, it, yeah. Monster movies are part of the horror genre and well, are a major I just part. hate the rapping. Right, yeah. Was well, <laughs> it because I, the monster in Shape of Water is sympathetic or a, a good guy as opposed to the malignant ghost in uh, Crimson Peak? Maybe well, that would be a reason to people. Are perhaps, in- but I, I think the real monster is Shannon in that yeah, film. I think yeah. the Russians are the monsters. I think everybody except for the two main characters yeah. have monstrous ca- uh, personality traits, including her friend who succumbs to you know the intimidation of her husband and this crazy guy who's tearing his finger off. Yeah. I might I might let yeah. uh, you know let him make the phone call too. Yeah. He tears a finger <laughs> off in front of me. But Peak uh, is also a movie where the people are more evil than the malignant spirits. The monster yeah. is sort of a red herring in that movie. Yeah. Yeah. And that's a movie that splits horror fans a lot too. Yeah. Uh, uh, a lot of people will say, well, that's more of a romantic film or yeah. and it's like, it, it really matters yeah. on whether you like Hammer films or not. Yeah. If you don't like Hammer films, you're not going to like Crimson Peak. But I love this list because of this. You know, this is like, I, I want to do like an Irish jig. I'm so giggly over this, this fucking list. It's so good. <laughs> Because it is a list of the island of misfit toys. I mean, we're, when we're if we're talking about Del Toro, you know, what's the first things that are going to come to people's minds? Devil's Backbone and uh, Pan's Labyrinth. Uh, but he for brings me, Crimson too, but for real, but no. right, Blade Two, yeah. Blade but I mean, Crimson Peak is like one of those that you're like, well, that's kind of like an oddly fitting shoe for some horror fans. Yeah. And John dies at the end, which I absolutely love. But it's yeah. a movie that was made for gum wrappers and popcorn. I mean, it's made yeah. on dimes and yeah, it's yeah. so great and uh beyond the black rainbow just out of its fucking mind if it wasn't yeah. for mandy people would not be talking about black rainbow they went back yeah. to black rainbow yeah. the first time they saw it they went what the fuck is this i have no idea who this guy is yeah. then they see mandy and it's like oh okay that insane isn't as insane as i remember it being uh, yeah. And the guest, Adam Wingard, he's done some really good movies, but the guest is one of those that people go, well, oh, it's a pretty good Adam Wingard. So I oh, love really? this list. I think the guest I think it's great. Way the best movie. By yeah, me. I think it's great. And I love how, it, and Backcountry is one that people forget, right? Yeah. Because, uh, and I love that one out of all the mad monster, or that and The Reef are probably the best animal yes. monster movies yes they're both uh, that great. i've seen in a long time and both. i just discovered backcountry coincidentally just a few weeks ago and just seen it for the first time yeah yeah so it's, good. it's nuts 
Yeah, it's so good. And it's that sense of dread. So I love this list because these are movies that uh, a lot of people would just be somewhat, I, I won't say dismissive, but they go, oh yeah, that's good too. That's the, yeah, I remember that one being pretty good. It's also good. so Brian in that like, it's perfectly, like it's a perfect tastemaker list too. Like it's just so perfectly on a certain harmony of like cult horror cinema, you know? Yeah. I mean? It's like a yeah. perfect kind of list. It's like, if you need five movies to understand like hip cult horror. Here you go. Like this is a perfect list for that. You know, it's very like Brian in that way. Like somebody yeah. who's very good at, uh, at like curating and recommending things. Yeah. And I just have to give one more cheer for Don Coscarelli. I mean, here's uh, this guy. Cheers for him. Yeah. Love that, John dies at the end. Yeah. Bubba Hotep and John yeah. dies at the end. Yeah. And he didn't even get to direct his last phantasm. He had some video yeah. game guy do it. But uh, you know, I just love that this this director is still pumping after all yeah. of this time. Absolutely. And, and I think when he was doing Masters of Horror, I think he did the second best or the best Masters of Horror uh, that was in that yeah. very first episode. The uh, Joe, Joe Lansdale story. Right? Yeah. It's on and off a mountain Yeah, road. it's an on and off a mountain road. Yeah. yeah. And yeah. I thought that that was really, really strong. And I was going, oh my God, he still has that, that great energy. And he's just always yeah. had uh, this. It's he's inimitable. There's nobody like yeah. him. Yeah. There's yeah. nobody like him, period. Yeah. Yeah, other people can try and do that kind of stuff, but if you set out to try and make a movie like Phantasm, you will not get that. No, and it's one of those things that I'm so glad that uh, you know J.J. Abrams decided to yeah. help him get it remastered, and My I got God. to see it. Yeah, it was so fucking great because it is a movie that. As my picks go on, uh, I'll start talking more about this thing that I absolutely love, which is where the elasticity of time and reality, you're mm -hmm. in horror. You're, you can do anything. You know, you can talk dreams, but you can also just, logic can be malleable. I love to say that horror, just like music, music doesn't need to work on a logical level. You know, you hear a hard day's night, that jing yeah, yeah. in the beginning, your, your emotions change immediately. And horror can live My without logic. Immediately. No, I'm just <laughs> but the, the idea is that logic, you can have a horror movie and it doesn't have to rely on logic, but it needs to have emotion. Emotion yeah. must be there. Yeah, and just and, like Chris was saying, nobody's like Coscarelli. I think so many filmmakers are worried about the rules, you know, the structure, yeah. and Coscarelli just has no boundaries, is the yeah. thing. Like, he is not worried about setting the place at uh, the table. He's just going to come and he's going to eat the dinner, you know? Yeah. Have his way with it. I absolutely love him for and that. And he's a master at finding these moments out of nowhere that are just work so well. His movies yeah. are just so full of unforgettable things. You know, he's like somebody who like proves every book on screenwriting is wrong. Right. <laughs> yes. Everything for why things have an impact and don't and just watch one of his movies and go, well, I don't know why the fuck that worked, but it was awesome. You know? Yeah. Yeah. The fact that they work, yeah, is what's just incredible. And that he should come across the book, John Dies at the End, which is so right in, you know, perfectly aligned with his mentality. Yeah. Have you guys read Pure Indie? 
or True Indian? Yes, yeah, yeah, yes. Yeah. It's, it's such a great book. It's really it's good. It's really great. The Beastmaster sections are quite jaw-dropping. Oh, my God, yeah. I, I never thought a singer is like anything. You know, I didn't even think he was that big in that movie, but obviously uh, no, I was wrong. But, yeah, it's, I, that, the reason I mentioned that is because of how he finds John dies in the end. Yeah. Always, yeah. And how he finds Lansdale. You know, he just yeah. goes into a bookstore and says, who should I be reading? The guy goes, have you read Lansdale? Mm-hmm. <laughs> Holy Absolutely. shit. Yeah. So thank you, Elric and Brian, for your list. I should mention Shockwave is going to be doing a Decade of Horror uh, episode at the end of the year. So keep an eye out for that. And we'll get their picks for some of the one, things yeah, that they love. That's got to be a killer episode. Oh, yeah, of course. Um, all right, I'm going to move to my fourth pick. And I am going to cheat. I'm going to pick two, two movies instead of one just because... I when I when I was trying to decide which of these two movies to talk about, I really cannot separate them from each other. I think that they're both really phenomenal films that exist in the same cinematic universe somehow. Not the MCU, mm. but just the regular crazy horror cinematic universe. Mm. Um, the first film is Gin by Toby Hooper, mm-hmm. which may be a little bit of a sentimental pick. I admit, uh, was his last film um, uh, before he died uh, four years later, but. It was a film that was buried with salt poured over the grave. Right. <laughs> right. I didn't even get to, I'm a huge Toby Hooper fan. I did not get to this movie for two or three years after it was made available because there was just no talk about it at all. Like people just did, just did, wanted to forget it. Um, completely unceremonious release. I couldn't believe when I finally saw it that it had zero advocates in the horror community. I mean, it is an incredibly effective and very powerful horror film. Um, it's the, apparently the first supernatural thriller to be filmed in both English and Arabic languages. Uh, it's Toby going out to United Arab Emirates and uh, doing this film that was put together from a screenplay by David Tully with um, uh, the uh, Emirati director, Nela Alcala, as the uh, cultural consultant. It, it definitely was a film that they wanted to be something very special. And so I'm just surprised that, you know, it never took off. And it's just one of those tragedies, I think, because it is such a great film. So what we have here is a married couple, Salama and Khalid, who've lost a baby. Uh, They're living in the States and they're having a tough time dealing with the loss. So they make the decision to return uh, to the United Arab Emirates to be with her family. It's not her decision. It's largely influenced by Khalid being offered a new job that he can't turn down. So she sort of loses control of the situation sort of immediately, this decision to move back and be in the same country where her her parents and her sister live. Uh, They're sent to live at a brand new high-rise apartment in Razahaima, which is one of Toby's signature sinister institutions. You know, it's towering in the middle of the desert encased in this heavy fog. So it fits perfectly with the ominous Luzman arms from Toolbox Murders or the isolated Fowler uh, mortuary. It's just... Or or the um, the laundry. uh, Yes. In uh, Mangler. Squish him up. Sure, yeah. Squish him up. (laughs) Yeah, well, yeah. I mean, going going back, of course, yeah. All of his great sinister institutions, but... Um, or the house in Salem's lot. It has that feel to it. Mm, yeah, uh, yeah, of course. That's just where T- Toby loves setting his stuff. Yeah. Uh, but Salama is miserable being abandoned in this cold, unfeeling environment in a country that she thought she'd left behind her. And that's when things start to get really creepy. Um, because as we learn, well, from the title, but also as we learn of going along, um, there is this demonic conspiracy that's rising up against her by these jinn, by these demons uh, that are basically the, um, 
you know, Middle Eastern version of the Furies, right? They want to right. punish sinners. Uh, and we've, as we find out, Salama has a secret that, you know, they're going to use against her. So it's her in this apartment. It's Khalid over in his uh, two hours away office, you know, being completely separated from each other, reality breaking down, uh, characters who we know have been killed showing up and talking to her, um, and just weird shit happening and just spatial clarity coming down as the film goes on. Uh, the other film that I want to recommend uh, as one of my favorites is Under the Shadow by uh, Babak mm-hmm. Fari. Uh, it's another film dealing with Jin that has Jin as the, as the antagonist, as it were. And this is uh, a film set in 80s Tehran during the war between the Islamic post-revolutionary Iran and Iraq. Um, but really what it is, it's, it's a perfect pairing with Wes Craven's New Nightmare because it's a, a story about... Uh, a woman left alone with her daughter <laughs> and her daughter is starting to freak out. She's starting to see things and she's being preyed upon by these demons and the woman has nowhere to turn, right? Her husband has been enlisted, drafted to, uh, you know, go to the front lines. And so she's left alone to try to protect her daughter from something she can't see and really doesn't believe in. Um, so obviously you can see uh, it's the classic, you know, the exorcist child's play, the Babadook, the single mom, you know, trying to watch and protect the child. Um, but really you can see why these two films are so similar because they're stories about uh, a woman who's being uh, assaulted by these invisible uh, things that are coming after her and slowly going crazy from this torment. Um, it has the added kind of subplot with the husband being away in the front lines. It gives an added motivation uh, to Shida, who's the uh, the mother in Under the Shadow. Uh, she's questioning her self-worth since her past involvement in leftist groups has effectively barred her from continuing her medical education. And her husband is a doctor on the front lines, so she feels useless. She feels like she has no place, and all she's doing is being here, again, left alone in this building with her daughter going crazy. It's the same with Salama, who's forced to give up her career and life in the States to follow her husband back to the Emirates. Um, and these are films about women's frustrations with their place in the world, and specifically within the Arab world, which obviously mm-hmm. is a controversy in and of itself. Another thing I love about Under the Shadow is that it falls into the very specific horror subcategory of a wartime horror film that focuses on characters who are not directly involved with the conflicts. Yeah. Yeah. I'm talking about classics like The Black Cat, talking about Isle of the Dead, talking about In a Glass Cage, or uh, more recently, The Others. Yeah, Uh, Devil's Backbone. Yeah. Yes, Devil's Backbone, perfect example. Isle of the Dead was actually the one that I think is the perfect pairing with this. Yeah, you know, they would go great together. Um, So Under the Shadow, both films, when you look at them sort of superficially, Jen and Under the Shadow are classic spook fest. You know, it's like creepy stuff happening, um, things coming out of the shadows, things preying upon the heroes and the question of, you know, are they going to be able to get out of there? Are they going to be able to maintain their sanity? But both of these films are just super rich stylistically. They're both really, really well made and put together. The lead performances uh, in Jin by um, Rosane Jamal, a Lebanese actress playing uh, Salama, and uh, uh, Nargis Rashidi in Under the Shadow are terrific. They're Phenomenal performances. Jim should be famous by now. I'm su- I'm surprised she's she isn't. So she is so good. 
She's um, so good and she's unbelievably gorgeous too. That also seems like a recipe sure. for success. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. There's yeah. no then, barriers to success when you're talented and beautiful. <laughs> and Jin is one of those movies that definitely uh, separates uh, horror fans uh, yeah. because I think I most of the people. It does. I can't believe. Yeah, most of the people that I know that are uh, even Hooper fans are like, Ugh. but I think uh, you know I can't really say much about it because it's a feel thing. It's kind of like. Yeah. Uh, well, Chris, you've said so yeah. much about this where cinema, a theater of cruelty are towed and, you yeah. know, his stuff, you know, by this time, <laughs> Hooper yeah. is just making these movies that, you know, you either feel it or you don't feel it. I have really, my, when I think about Jen and Under the Shadows too, to a certain extent, um, when Werner Herzog and Errol Morris, they went out to Wisconsin to like, because Errol Morris was researching Ed Gein, and they went out to Wisconsin with like the idea of trying to dig up Ed Gein's mother's grave to see if it was still there. Uh, but they got out there and it's like Wisconsin in winter, so they can't get anything under the ground. And they're like studying the graveyards to like see, because Ed Gein was like going in a circle around his mother's grave the things he was digging up with her sort of like a center of the wheel. And they were out there in Wisconsin with each other. Like Herzog uh, was encouraging Errol Morris to like make a movie and do something. And then Errol, and then um, Werner Herzog made Strozek out there, right? And Errol Morris got furious, accused him of stealing a landscape from him. He says, you've stolen my landscape. That's went, fucking went, awesome. Went to pay him $5,000 for the landscape, Errol Morris threw the envelope out the window, right, refused to take the money. And I think that um, it's true that a landscape is one of the most important parts of a film. And Jen has a landscape mm -hmm. that is unlike any other landscape right. I have ever seen. And the interest and the wisdom of that movie is placing these characters in this new landscape. And what it does is it affects the traditional dynamic. This movie has the traditional horror film city country split, right? Of right. Deliverance, I Spit on Your Grave, Texas Chainsaw Massacre, where you have more cosmopolitan, urbane people being set against some remote backwoods types. But by putting this in uh, the, the Emirates, right? And putting this out in the desert and creating this new landscape that gives an entirely new tone to the city country split. It's like discovering an entire new planet to me on this. Right. And I understand the complaint that like the ghosts are like the post-grudge Japanese creepy crawling, right. you know, herky-jerkies. I get that the ghosts aren't great, but you're not watching this for the ghosts. You're watching this for a horror movie in which taking off the uh, veil, taking off the headdress is a radical, terrifying act, you know, in which all right. of these new gestures and new landscapes, these new clothings, the conflict between the religions, between the conservative and liberal, more liberalized Muslims and Arabs is the entire show, you know? Right. And to me, it's still striking. You watch this, and it's like no other movie you've seen, you know? And I agree with John that I probably have a lot of sentimental uh, uh, affection for it because I do love um, Toby Hooper so much. But I think it's a really strong film. I really do think it's a strong film. And it always, it always surprises me when people are like, it's terrible. Because at very right. worst, it's solid. At very worst, if you like 
the grudge or the ring or any of that stuff you should like this fucking movie too you know it's yeah. at worst as good as those yeah so, well it's kind of like what you hear with uh, somebody had said this to me the other day about the ward john carpenter's yeah. the ward mm-hmm. and it's like it's solid it's yeah. not dismal but it's not carpenter yeah and so i think that for some horror fans it's so not hooper Right yeah. from where it is, because it's in this foreign, uh, completely alien landscape, yeah. and that might be where people have that issue with it. But yeah, There's sometimes no unhinged quality to it. Right, he barely made memorable movies that don't feel unhinged. Right, and I think that that's what if you're a Cooper fan, you're sort of looking for the moment when like they find what's in the fucking basement that it's like an antechamber to hell. You know, right. Like, uh, there's two buildings in one. There's, yeah, <laughs> there's exactly. extra there's walls. getting like garbage pressed in the laundry. You know, any number of things. You're looking for Leatherface to show right. up. You know? Yeah, but certainly all the Toby Hooper movies, especially the good, certainly the good ones, have a strong female protagonist who's yes. at the center of the movie. And that, I think, is the thematic thing that's running throughout this yes. film. I think this movie is more, is perfectly interesting without being unhinged. You know, I think that it's a very... I think it's the kind of thing that he could have done regularly if he had received proper support. You know, I think that that this is a movie that feels like everybody involved was actually professionals for once. So you have Mm -hmm. great performances across the board. You have stylish photography. You have really crisp editing on this movie. And it's put together to be an effectively moody, low-key ghost story. And I don't think when you think Toby Hooper, you think low-key ghost story. So I think that throws people off as well. I think if it were an unknown filmmaker, I think this would be an unheralded gem. It would be turning up on like overlooked, great overlooked horror movie lists. Scott, do you know Under the Shadow? Have you seen that one? Yes. Yeah, it's a good film. It's a mm-hmm. good film. It's yeah. another one that uh, I, I recommend to people who like ghost stories mm-hmm. because yeah. I, I, I think that uh, that's a great entrance into uh, as uh, one of the things that I, why I mentioned um, Devil's Backbone is it has that whole thing yeah. of where the war is the supernatural beast. It's just mm-hmm. just outside of the, the frame. And those two films share a visual too, the unexploded yeah. bomb. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And so uh, I, I thought it was really good. And it's interesting that it doesn't get talked about that often. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it, I, once again, a pretty solid film. And I think that the performance is really strong. I, there's something about... W- you know, it's, it's an old thing where you have uh, movies where the mentor gets killed halfway through and then the, the student must get strong. There's another trope that's always full of anxiety, which is the strong guy isn't home. Yeah. You know, so, the, so the husband being away at war, and we don't know, is he dead? Is he alive? Is he ever going to be able to come back? And they have to be strong. She has to be strong and survive the madness of what's happening to her kid. Uh, that's really tremendously disturbing. <laughs> yeah. I, and so that's why I like pairing it with a uh, new nightmare because I think of Heather right. Langenkamp in that film having to deal with, you know, her son all by herself and trying to keep him safe from Freddy Krueger. Yeah. Um, but I never of, even thought of that. Yeah. I never even yeah, thought yeah. Speaking of, that. of Speaking of Craven, because I, I couldn't pull the trigger on this one. I really wanted, I really wanted to put it on the list, but speaking of in one of the last movies by a legendary horror filmmaker, uh, my soul to take, right? I love that movie from Wes Craven. It is a hated hated movie in the horror community um and i get it and the ending is kind of weak but i i don't know there's something about that film 
it's it's bonkers in a good way that i really <laughs> enjoy so i probably wouldn't go to bat for it the same way i would go for gin which i feel is a really at, at worst like chris was saying a solid horror movie right. uh, but my soul to keep just as the batshit crazy thing that it is will always have like a place in my heart well it's also it's so it's one of the true like I don't even understand what the pitch was on this movie. Yeah. It's a movie that an hour in, you're like, what is the concept? Is it the return of the creature or the creature's ghost we're afraid of? And it probably is, it probably is what you suspected is, which is a mess. You know, like they fucked, they, they got messed up at some point. Yeah, and we're like, maybe but it's they're a all, very interesting maybe they're mess. all the son of a 10,000 maniacs, you know, like yeah. these are all one soul. It's, yeah. <laughs> it's also interesting to see uh, a great horror director like that uh, completely out of control too. I think that when you have an interesting filmmaker and things go spectacularly awry, it always ends up being worthwhile. When you have a bad filmmaker and mm-hmm. things go awry, it's unwatchable. When you have a great filmmaker and things go awry, it's really compelling. Yeah. All right. So thanks guys. Um, next list, uh, next two lists. We have, uh, is from the producers and co-writers of Horror Noir, A History of Black Horror. Uh, so yeah, yeah. It's a Shutter exclusive uh, about uh, black representation in horror films from the last um, few decades. Uh, obviously, a hugely important documentary. And the people who brought it together are and the ones... awesome and fun. And awesome and fun. Yeah. And the people... Not eat your vegetables. It's really... No, 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 yeah. no, no. Yeah, no, it's very entertaining and very cool and smart. But the two people who brought it to us are the contributors of the next list. First one is uh, Tanana Reeve Du, who is well known as a horror fiction writer. Uh, her books include The Between, mm-hmm. Good House, and the African Immortal series, which started with My Soul to Keep. She's currently teaching black horror and Afrofuturism at UCLA uh, on top of working on these amazing films, these great, great documentary, Horror Noir. So uh, the list from Tanana Reeve is Get Out. Us, which are both obviously by Jordan Peele, uh, The Girl with All the Gifts by Colin McCarthy, It Follows, and The Babadook by Jennifer Kent. And Babadook is one we haven't talked about. No, it's yet. popping up for the first time. Let's, why don't we do both lists together? Or do you want to do this? No, let's do her still with this one. Okay. Yeah. yeah, I'm interested. I'm surprised Babadook hasn't come up that much. That's another one that you know, yeah. has penetrated well, a larger sense of pop culture. Well, Tanana Reeves' list is one of the reasons that I was having like heart palpitations when I was asked to try and pick five of the best <laughs> horror films yeah. at the time. I'm like, I'm an idiot if I don't put Get Out and The Babadook in there. And yeah, then right, it's right, like, right. Uh, what about It Follows? That's also another really good one. Yeah. So uh, I, I really, I think it's important to, to talk about The Babadook, uh, which uh, I thought, you know, you asked me early in the earlier episode of this uh, series that we're doing here uh, about what I saw as reasons for the diversity or what was interesting about this decade. And I really think the diversity of narrators, the people who are telling the stories, uh, are really indicative in this in this list here. I mean, The Babadook, I don't think you can have that movie made by a guy. It's not going to be the same thing. No, uh, it is. It has an end, a resolution that has never happened in a horror movie before, or 
in a movie, I'm not even sure, uh, which is, you know, most of the time there's a hidden curse or you got to kill the monster or the monster's going to kill us. They come up with a third option. Kent comes up with a third option, which is absolutely amazing and ties the entire movie together so beautifully. Mm -hmm. It's a strong, frightening film and it's so disturbing. And, you know, if people don't like that movie, they're usually like, yeah, I get it. I get it. The kid's a nightmare. Did we need that much of the kid? And it's like, yes. The, the, the thing is, she never gets to leave, right? That's the horror. You know, she, uh, the idea that you could make a movie where the mother is not going to absolutely love the kid selflessly and not make her the absolute monster is brilliant. Because yeah. that is the thing. We go to these preconceived notions. I really liked uh, the movie, the short uh, uh, film inside of XX that was done by, um, it was the, oh, which one? the, the Ketchum, the Jack Ketchum, the box. Oh, okay. Uh-huh. Jovanka Vukovic is the director, Jovanka Vukovic. And uh, she does this amazing thing of not even changing the text of the Ketchum story. All she does is change the sex. So instead of it being the husband who's our narrator, we have the wife. And all of the choices that she makes, you read them differently because women are supposed to act a certain way. So you're seeing her instead of being, you know, it's a sad thing that the guy just can't connect with his kids. It's kind of melancholy. You just wish he could. She's a bitch and a nightmare because she can't connect with the kids. You know, all, all they do is change the, the, the sex of the person and it changes the reading. And that's what the Babadook does so well is that it, it allows us the freedom of seeing a woman be a woman who can this she's not going to be some fucking ridiculous idol from the bible that she's going to be able to handle this nightmare kid and then of course you see why the kid's a nightmare and there's so much humanity in the babadook it's just mm-hmm. miraculous and, and still lots of questions unanswered by the end of the movie yeah and it's all in this wonderful fairy tale. What a great idea that the monster is the thought that's in you that you wish you didn't have. Yeah. And once it's thought, it can't be stopped. And it's so great. And it's all about grief and all about guilt and all about resentment. These are these wonderful gems that this decade has plumbed so well. You know, these not terror and surprise, going down to the, some of the more base emotions, the shameful emotions, the ones that you're partly responsible for the demise of yourself. That's the amazing stuff that they're doing in the Babadook. And, uh, and Get Out. I mean, we talked about Get Out very quickly, and I think it's very important to sit there and, and say how strong that film is and how important that film is. I consider it this time period's Night of the Living Dead. I think that it does the same things that Night of the Living Dead did. There is a definite line, that a chopping point that is almost generational in whether you get get out or you don't. And uh, it's uh, just the idea of uh, a post-racial America, looking at a post-racial America through the eyes of the character that's in that film. The idea that you're we've spent all of this time chasing imaginary racists as opposed to what's out there. You know, the idea of having the, 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 the uh, sunken place being the idea that your, your one time allies 
have stopped taking your calls, <laughs> have, have just become part of the problem and congratulating themselves for a job half done. You know, it's, it's such a smart film. You know, I always wonder about what it was like the first time Jordan Peele at like went to dinner with Chelsea Peretti and her family after they had all seen the movie with Chelsea <laughs> Peretti and her family. I was wondering what the fuck that dinner was like. Yeah, I mean, and I and it, it, it hit me on how deep some of the tropes were that had to be shattered by Get Out, which is another yeah. very funny movie, and yes. it's intentionally funny, and it's important that it's funny uh, because that uh, that sets the tragedy up so well when it really hits and goes deep down in that the feels, the emotions that you get yeah. from that film. You need that well, humor. We, they need to be smart. Humor is smart, and it shows that the characters are clever, that they're not mopes running into this yeah. thing and being fools. And, and um, well, we said oh. with Willow Creek, you couldn't tell it was directed by a comedian at all. Right. This movie has, he has, it's somebody with an incredible sense of setup and yes. with how to maneuver an audience into the joke, which is sometimes funny and sometimes horrifying in this movie. Yeah. It and really, it has a comedian's deafness with setting up an audience to knock them down. Yeah, and the big trope that needed to be abolished, to be destroyed, was something that I fell the first time I watched it, when I first saw it, and I saw the lights of the police car, and he's standing over his wounded white girlfriend. I'm going, okay, this is Ben. Ben must die. Ben has to die because if it's not, then we don't get the big impact. Yeah. But that's so 1968. Yeah. <laughs> and so it's like, but I don't see it. I see it as, oh, we always have to have sacrificial lamb, right? Yeah. But the, the black community sitting there going, do we have to see another guy get shot and killed? Do we need to see him go to jail? So yeah. it's a revolutionary act for him to make it through. And we're like, well, wait a second, what happened? No, it's not for us. You know, it's, yeah. uh, we need to get past that. And so I thought that it was, uh, it, it opened my eyes to how often I fall into the same tropes. And that's one of the things that I will say that was so great about uh, Har and War, not only hearing the words Abby again and seeing scenes from <laughs> Abby, which I saw in the drive-in, but uh, just how often my interpretations are only from what I know and why I think that it's so important that we are seeing diverse uh, uh, people telling stories, uh, not only minorities, but women telling these stories is that we still have the same stories. It's just a, a shift in perspective. Take a different lens. Stop using the eight, go to the 14. You know, let's try something new. And it's just that whole change in depth of field that allows us to look at a world that we are missing. And I think that that's so important, so impressive. And I think that that is really going to take horror into uh, even bolder frontiers. I absolutely agree. Uh, Scott, thank you. Um, the next list from uh, Ashley Blackwell, who's also a co-producer and co-writer of Horror Noir. Uh, she's written for Fangoria, Rue Morgue, Salem Horror Fest, The Guardian, and Birth Movies Death. But I think her legacy is going to end up being graveyardsshiftsisters.com, uh, <laughs> um, which you know is an online resource dedicated to the scholarship surrounding the experiences, representations, achievements, and creative works of black women and women of color in horror and science fiction genres. Uh, reading it straight from the website because that sums it up beautifully. And uh, yes, you can and should donate and uh, go to the website and uh, give them some money because this is a really important and awesome thing that exists. Uh, Ashley, 
Bailey's list is The Conjuring, Get Out, The Perfection, directed by Richard Shepard, Raw, and Starry Eyes. So interesting. I'm surprised by how few films from our list, well, not really, we all have weird lists, but how <laughs> few of our lists have come up on, on other people's lists. So it's always, it's a nice, you know, it's that like, brotherhood's not the word I'm looking for here, but it's that sense of like fraternity when you see like starry eyes on somebody's yeah. list, you know, <laughs> you go right on. And I think that our fans have that in a way that fans of no other genre have of just being like, yeah, I love that one too. You know, it's still, yeah. there's still something about horror that it will perpetually be an outsider art, an outsider genre, even when it's like Get Out was the dominant uh, pop cultural event of its year. You know, it still feels like outsider art always. Yeah. And there's yeah. a real, like connection to the other people who are into it. Yeah, I see that outsider art thing. Uh, it's almost like wearing a heavy metal T-shirt. You don't wear the concert uh, that you're going to the band. Yeah. <laughs> where you are the most obscure band that you possibly can to see the other guy that goes, man of war. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> exactly. Well, when you said Fear of God earlier, I was like, ah, oh, that's a great EP. <laughs> oh, that is a great band. Drift. Yeah. That's a magnificent song. Yeah. yeah, very good. See, exactly. We can talk metal sometime, too. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's cool seeing the perfection on her list. Um, I, I, I like the perfection as sort of like a slick, uh, sort of new, new sort of horror film that has, you know, maybe not a lot of deep ideas, but in sort of, it's sort of going for the vein of sort of a, a South Korean uh, kind of film where it's just it's very cool has a very cool look. It has a very uh, unexpected and unpredictable sort of plot going on and kind of goes into lots of different areas that you might not have expected. Even though Richard Shepard is not a horror movie director, usually, uh, I think that he did actually a pretty good job with this one. It was a very entertaining film. Yeah, he's a very solid journeyman. And it's mm -hmm. interesting sometimes when journeymen step into the horror genre and deliver something very solid. It's always yeah. it's always a, a nice surprise. Because mm -hmm. I think the track record, it's again, it's a genre where like the good horror movies are made by horror directors. You know, that's just right. the way it is. And you can even be Sam Raimi and go on and do three Spider-Man movies and be one of the hugest directors in the world. But Sam Raimi will always be a horror director, you know? In my estimation. And everybody's. And Stuart Gordon can go on and, you know, mm -hmm. write Honey, I Shrunk the Kids. But Stuart Gordon is a horror director, you know? Yeah, uh, unabashedly. Yeah. And so I think it's fascinating the few times when you have a, a journeyman make a great horror film. Except Craven broke out of the mold with Music of the Heart, for sure. Yes. And, uh, <laughs> and, and Yeah. Oh, my God. Of it. <laughs> oh God, I, I, that was one of the most heartbreaking moments of my life. Seeing Nightmare on Elm Street and going, I have found God. You yeah. know, this, I can't believe how good this is. This is everything that I want out of a horror film. And then I can't wait to see a deadly friend. Yeet, 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 yeet. And it's like, oh my God, <laughs> killing someone with a basketball. Yeah. And it's like, oh man, it felt like a TV movie. It was just so wrongheaded. Speaking of, TV mm -hmm. movie isn't a uh, perfection. Was that a Netflix? It was a Netflix. Amazon? Yeah, made for Netflix. Yeah, it was. So, so maybe, there we go. Once again, we get more mm -hmm. stuff because we have these 
disparate areas. Like right now, I'm watching my television and there's like Apple Plus and IMDb Pro. These are channels making or showing shows that uh, I'm not sure if you can get anywhere else. I have to do some research on it, but it's, it's almost like, a well that is overflowing. It's like the, the Fantasia brooms. It's like, I don't even know where to look at this point. <laughs> um, so the last, last film I'd like to draw out on this list because it's come up already is Raw. Um, yes. It's a really good film. Uh, I, I think of it as like a cool extension of my favorite horror film from the previous decade, which was Marina Devan's film, In My Skin. Yes. And of course, they're both French films. Magnificent. Uh, this is almost like a weird prequel to it because they're all younger <laughs> characters in it. Yeah. Um, they're all younger girls destined to devour themselves. Destined to eat all their flesh. Um, but it's got a cool Soska sister sort of feel to it too because mm-hmm. of this relationship between the two women in the film. Yeah. And also the you know idea that they kind of respond to the uh, the the male dominate society the kind of rituals of the college yeah. that they're going to by <laughs> adopting this very extreme lifestyle it's <laughs> also very uh like a mutation in their own you know yeah their own bio, bio, uh, biological makeup and that they change and transform in the way like an american mary they you know they, they take something negative and turn it into something yeah. that is horrific but to them a positive transformation. Yeah, it's also darkly hilarious. I mean, Very there funny are movie. moments in that that are so funny. And it really, you know, it comes together so magnificently at the end. The reveal of the family is mm-hmm, uh, yeah. really, I did not see that coming. I wasn't quite sure where it was going. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I loved where it was taking me. Uh, De, uh, Maria Devan's film, Marina Devan's film is uh, astonishing. I've done uh, stuff on my podcast about it. It's so low budget. It's so small. Oh, yeah. And it's so powerful. And prof- I mean, that one, doesn't have a lot of humor. It has the uh, the idea behind it. Uh, there's humor, but only that, that is, you got to laugh or you, you don't yeah, know what you can do. Yeah, it. yeah I mean, yeah. it's hypnotic how disturbing that film is. And I've I've reached out to her just to thank her for for the film. So I have was, I. Yeah, no, she's <laughs> he's a character. I'm sure, yeah, I'm sure yeah. you got a very. Marina Devan answer. I, I definitely, I definitely learned more than I wanted to about that film. But yeah, it's absolute masterpiece. Uh, all right, so thank you so much uh, to yes. Matt and Ashley Blackwell uh, for uh, Horror Noir and for your list. Uh, we're going to wrap this episode up. This is the end of episode two. We are going to continue. Uh, we're going to conclude with episode three, where we're going to be having Mr. S. A. Bradley give us his fourth pick. Yeah. Fourth of five. We'll all do our fourth and fifth picks on that episode and wrap it up. Do some more lists. More picks, more lists. Uh, please join us in episode three. Who will survive? Who will survive? What will be left of us? 